This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Hello, and welcome once again to a History of Westeros podcast, a podcast dedicated to... A Song of Ice and Fire books by George R.R. Martin, as well as the television show Game of Thrones on HBO. I am just one of your hosts. I'm Steve, a.k.a. The Friggin' Italian, here out here in Los Angeles. And with us, we have a special guest. I'm going to let my trusty cohort, Aziz, introduce this person as well. Hi there, folks. Aziz here again, as usual, uh, out here in Atlanta with our great map background, trying, uh-huh. to, trying to make ourselves visually appealing as well as... Audially appearing. What is that? Or orally appearing? Orally. Orally appearing. Yes, yeah, appealing. Yeah, I can't <laughs> anyway, oh, that's not very appealing at all. But uh, Ashea here on my left is. <laughs> so we are. Uh, we're pretty excited. We've got uh, what we believe is probably our best researched episode to date. As every episode that goes by, we, we seem to work a little harder. And we get more mm-hmm. feedback from you guys, and that just encourages us even more to work harder and um, put out an even better show. So, uh, without any further ado, uh, let's get started. Okay, so uh, first off, before we get started, I want to uh, mention a couple things. Um, we've gotten a lot of new followers on Twitter as well as YouTube, and I just want to welcome you all. And uh, we hope you keep listening. And, of course, as usual, if you have any suggestions or whatever, just let us know. Um, we're open to it. We also have a Facebook page you can, uh, you know, uh, subscribe to, uh, History of Westeros on Facebook. Um, now, just keep in mind on the YouTube page that is an actually a raw feed. Um, there's no editing done to it whatsoever. There's no music. Um, hopefully, we get to a point where we can edit it and do where it matches up with the audio podcast. But right now, just keep in mind it is raw. Some people prefer that, I suppose. You can, you know, it's more of like a real conversation. You don't, you know, you get the, you get the raw, like I said, it's the raw feed. So you hear us talking about what we could talk about in between topics, or you get to hear our mistakes, um, which, which uh, well, that appeals more. But uh, just be aware, yeah, the uh, the iTunes feed is it's more cleaned up, but but you don't get to see us, so yeah, little of, little of both. You've got choices. <laughs> yes. All right, so let's get started. What are we talking about this week? Well, we have, uh, we're going to talk about the plots, which of course means, anytime we talk about plots, that's a, that means there's heavy spoilers. Uh, we have, continuing from our last episode, as we, we introduced the topics of the of Old Town and the Citadel, the Maesters, the High Towers, and all those related subjects. Well, we're continuing on that vein. This time we're going to deal with the spoilers, stuff that happens during the books, the topics that, if you haven't seen, or rather, if you haven't read the books, this stuff will be pretty spoilery. We're going to start with what's happening around Old Town. Now, we see from Sam's chapters that Old Town is not under normal circumstances. Normally, they're a very busy, active port, the second biggest port in Westeros, and of course, the oldest, uh, much cleaner and uh, much cleaner city than King's Landing by far. And it's uh, they're they're having trouble with Ironborn. 
with the Ironborn raiding them. Now, when you think of raiders and reavers, you don't think of them attacking giant cities. You think of them attacking small villages, little undefended places, attacking where there's no defenses, and getting away before real help comes. They don't like fighting a lot of pitched battles. So the fact that they're striking at a, a massive, important port uh, really says a lot about their, the current state of affairs and how Euron Greyjoy, the crow's eye, has really fired them up and gotten them to take their, their uh, militaristic nature to another level. And of course, we also know that he's interested in acquiring dragons through this horn that he has sent with his brother Victarion off to the east, along with uh, a maester and some other people, the dusky woman whose tongue has been cut out. But as far as Old Town itself, there's... I'm sorry, did, you, did, did Steve, did you want to say something? No, okay. Uh, we have a notion of uh, a plot where the, the, the Ironborn tried to sneak into Old Town in order to burn the port. Uh, so they were really trying to take Old Town out sort of as a... Uh, defense mechanism for that part of Westeros. That basically, if, if, if Old Town is kind of removed from the the, uh, the scene, there it's basically the last major uh, set of opposition that's facing them because the Tyrell fleet's on the other side of, of the, the continent. So what happens was a group of Ironborn took a Tyrashi ship and took the dyes. The, the Tyrashi are famous for coloring their beards and hair many colors. You know, like Dario Naharis colors his beard purple or, or gold or blue, for example. And so they captured all these dyes and used them and colored their beards fanciful colors so they'd look like Tairashi. And then when they came up to the port, uh, just by coincidence, there happened to be a man from Tairash there, uh, or a man whose wife is from Tairash, I forget. And, and he calls out to them in their native language. And when, he, and when none of them could answer him, none of them appeared to even understand him, he realized something was up, he sounded the alarm, and the crisis was averted. But ever since then, and perhaps before that, there's, uh, Old Town has been on high alert. The harbor is not open normally. They have a boom stretching across it. They've got a bunch of wrecked ships kind of blockading it so that you know, a large fleet can't just come in. So they're really worried about that. And the second issue is that we know that this isn't the only try. Uh, because Sam, when he's pulling up there in the Cinnamon Wind, the Summer Islander ship that he arrives in, they see evidence of a recent sea battle, including a few wrecked ships that appear to be Euron's, as well as some ships that aren't his. And this is very near Old Town. So these don't appear to be related. You don't try to sneak in and then send a bunch of ships to break in. These are, appear to be two separate attempts to break into Old Town. So he's really, it appears that Euron is really focusing on this area, as well as, you know, the Arbor and the Shield Islands and all the other places that he's captured. So raiding has become pretty popular around there, and uh, they uh, they want to they make sure that they, you know, that they, they've taken the Arbor, the Arbor rather, and some other spots. Yeah, and, uh, and it makes sense. I mean, because if they secure Old Town, that pretty much secures the entire southeast of uh, Westeros, with the exception of maybe the Lannisport. Uh, Lansport would probably stand, would stand it for at least a while. Uh, so I guess Castle Rock would probably be included in that since they're such neighbors. But uh, but if they take a Oak Town, yeah, they got a good chunk of Westeros Eastern, you know, Eastern Seaboard, which is a huge deal because of all the trading they do, especially with like the Arbor, like you were saying. And Lannister leadership 
is is kind of bad right now. Uh, you know, they've lost many leaders. So I, I don't. We've hadn't heard of anyone taking charge over there and building ships or doing anything like that. So yeah, they, they kind of. It seems like they aren't really have the East Coast on lockdown or the West Coast on lockdown. But all yeah. towns still hold tight for now. Yeah. So for them, securing the, the the whispering sound, which is of course the entrance to the Mander. Um, is very a big deal uh, for the Ironborn um, because they secure the Whispering Sound, they've got Old Town, and they've got that entrance. And as we said last week, that Mander stretches, you know, all the way up through High Garden, through Bitter Ridge, or Bitter Ridge, and almost to, to uh, King's Landing. So that would be a huge boon for them to actually secure that area. So that's what they they're really strategically trying to do. Right. The Mander um, is right there, and then the Honeywine. You're running through Old Town, would control all that access as well. So yeah, they would have in routes up the river as well as the, the ports, and that that would be really rather dominant of them. <laughs> they could grab all. Of them. Yeah, and then, and let's not forget about how uh, they've already they've already you know secured the Shield Islands, and they fortified those, and that's really key because that's like a waypoint between the Iron Islands and Old Town, and it makes it a great way station for resupplying, um, you know. Getting a, a, a rear echelon for the troops or the soldiers or the sailors or whatever the case may be. So it's really a key point for them to secure, to continue their onslaught against Old Town. Now, one question that's interesting is whether or not Euron is actually looking for information on dragons. Whether mm -hmm. or not he's taking, and the most likely thing is he's just worried about Old Town because it's a very important base, it's a powerful it's a seat of power, and there's a lot of money there, uh, and it would stop him in his plans for domination. But, we know he's working on dragons, so that's an interesting possibility as well. Maybe he's looking for something in the Citadel. And, you know, and that's a good point. Um, it's possible, but uh, I, I think he's really relying more on the horn, and I think yeah. the, the horn's going to be enough, and, and uh, you know, as we know, uh, we'll, we'll discuss later about how he's you know, actually going to be reaching out towards Daenerys. Well, something magical is going to go down maybe in Old Town, though, because we hear about the old, old uh, Lord Leighton Hightower, who's up in his Hightower for the past ten years, and he's up there consul apparently consulting spell books with his daughter, Melora the Mad Maid. And whether that's gossip or untrue or what have you, she has that that name for a reason. Mad, probably because she is somewhat scholarly and they're up there. But Old Town is going to be the site of some serious, serious action in the next book. Yeah, a lot of that, and it's interesting to think about that. We have some of that could be superstition. You know, we we haven't seen Leighton Hightower. We don't know anyone who's actually seen him. Uh, when you got a guy that's sitting on top of the tower for 10 years, uh, I guess they tell a lot of stories. Mm -hmm. But uh, so that, that doesn't matter. As far as we're concerned, we still are very curious <laughs> whether, or not it's a, whether or not it's just fancy talk by the sailors or just people's gossip gone run awry. We really want to know. <laughs> it's also unusual that this Melora character is interesting, the mad maid that, mm -hmm. that tells you a lot about her. She's unmarried. She's the first, do first child, of, I believe, of, of Leighton Hightower. Mm -hmm. Usually the eldest, usually the daughters of, of hot noble houses get married off to create political alliances. So she's unusual. Um, but he we keeps don't... her up in the tower with him at the moment. He sent all of his other kids off to do these other tasks around Old Town, but still to do other tasks. And Melora's up there in the tower with him. So 
Now, one one thing we're going to do in this episode, most of this episode is going to be focused on the maesters. Uh, there's a lot of plots and tidbits to deal with the individual maesters at the Citadel as well as throughout Westeros. But uh, we wanted to start and end the show with things that are not directly related to the maesters, just things that kind of surround them or near them. For example, this plot with Old Town. Another big one. So we're going to deal with the, the very strong possibility that Jake and Hagar has infiltrated the Citadel. And we're going to touch on his connections to Euron Greyjoy as well. So just uh, stay tuned. We're going we're gonna to tie that up at the end. We've got some more information that's going to help make that all come clear that we need to get to first. Mm-hmm. So, yes. let's get into the Maesters. Yes. Start out on the Maesters. We're gonna, I'm going to read a quote that Leo Tyrell reads. It's from the prologue of A Feast for Crows. And it's a very interesting quote. It goes, The gray sheep have closed their eyes, but the mastiff sees the truth. Old powers waken, shadows stir. An age of wonder and terror will soon be upon us. An age for gods and heroes. So that's pretty interesting, but we won't go into the bit more supernatural, mystical aspects of that, and we won't talk about the Mastiff until we turn back to Aziz. I'll give you a little bit of an overview of the Maesters, which we went into on the last episode, but we should go into a little bit more. Uh, Maesters, they don't so much serve a, a person, they serve a castle or keep. There are some exceptions that we see throughout the text, but in general, they serve the castle. And you can see that with, like, Mason Ruin and the Starks, you know, and stuff like that when Theon comes in, and he still helps him. Um, many Maesters come from extremely low birth, but not all of them, and a lot of them we, we just have no idea. Because they, they, they assume their previous name, their former name, but there are there are maesters from houses like Targaryen and Tyrell and other the, the noblest houses of the realm. So it's not it's still those. Um, they're bound to their castle. Not like the Citadel doesn't tell them you cannot ever leave your castle. But they have a lot of duties at their castle. They have the ravens for one. They have a ravenry there. Someone needs to be there to take care of those ravens. And so like. You can't just take off from your castle and let your ravens die. Um, they're also, so a lot of them are old. Most of the maesters we see are pretty old in general. At least, like, I mean, Maester Aemon, Maester Lewin, those are all very old men. They shouldn't be traveling around so much. Uh, but they also maybe have helpers. We see Sam with the Maester Aemon. They send Sam off to uh, take care of the ravens because Aemon just could like, that, that, he would die. He would just, like, he couldn't do that. He couldn't handle being yeah. out of cold like that. Yeah, that would be ridiculous to ask him like that of him. You wouldn't have a maester anymore. And then we have Maester Crescent who could barely climb stairs. Yeah. Like, that guy, you're not sending yeah, him anywhere. Just, yeah, but uh, <laughs> the maesters, like, we, they're generally, like, some lords seem to trust the maesters, and we, our first introduction to the maesters, we see one that's highly trusted. We see Maester Lewin. But that's not always the case. Yeah, Maester Lewin, like George does throughout the series... He introduces us to a character who's part of an organization or part of a family and then gradually changes our opinion about that family. Uh, Maester Lewin, if, if every maester were Maester Lewin, they'd all be the great old wise man who's wonderful with your children, who's completely trustworthy, who you let in your room uh, yeah. when you're talking about your deepest secrets. So you kind of get the impression from Maester Lewin that this is what all maesters are like, but it's not at all the case. Maester Lewin is 
an exception in many ways, but very much so. Uh, he's not, you know, it, it's not. There's plenty of maesters that are that resemble him in a lot of ways. But we want to. What I, the paint, picture I'm trying to paint here is that it goes a lot of ways. These are human beings. Some of the maesters are very trustworthy. Some of them are not. And some of the lords just don't want to trust them, regardless of how trustworthy they are. They just don't happen to trust them. Maybe they're just not a very trusting person, and they don't know this guy, so they don't want to trust him. But maesters, by definition, they work with secrets. The, the, the ravens pass information back and forth between lords that are often the type of information that they would desperately want to keep anyone else from finding out about. Uh, consider some of these messages that go back and forth. Consider some of the messages that are too dangerous to send by Raven. For example, when Catelyn travels south uh, to follow Ned after learning about more information about the dagger, she doesn't trust a Raven to carry that information. It could be intercepted by a maester who passes that off to somebody else. The bird might not even get there. The message could land somewhere else. So It would go to my Maester Pycelle eventually, yeah. too. So. And we all, we've seen that yeah. Maester Pycelle is not to be trusted with certain information. So... Mm. We basically the, the trope of of Maester Lewin is kind of broken down over time as we go throughout the series. You see more and more maesters who aren't nearly like him. They're less trustworthy, and um, but but I want to really point out. I want to hammer away at the point that it's not just that the maesters aren't always trustworthy. Sometimes that the lords just are very careful with their information, and they know that if you tell this maester, well, who else, you know who else is going to find out? Uh, so it's, it's more of an information control sort of thing. Um, but there's also things like troop movements. I mean, you could have a maester sending out information. Imagine that a lord decides to marshal his army and head out somewhere. What would happen if the maester just went ahead and, after that lord leaves with his army, a maester just sends a raven out saying, hey, look, my lord just left with his army. And who would be able to tell that the maester gave that information away other than the maester that received that message? There's no one to tell that that maester gave that info up. These guys are the called as... I'm sorry? Or the raven gets caught. Right. So these guys are billed as being trustworthy, uh, but a lot of times, but at the same time, they're carrying information that is extremely important, extremely like hot, top secret, very volatile thing. So it's it's important to point out they're not just this guy in the background that does the healing and the, and the teaching of the children. They actually are privy to some of the most important game-changing information. And... Uh, that, that's going to come up more throughout this podcast, some of these important pieces of information that get used in the wrong way or that the, the information falls in the wrong hands. So, so let's talk about, uh, let's talk also, because they don't have families uh, specifically, uh, they, they, well, they do have families. They just, like the Night's Watch, they sort of give up their family. They sort of uh, take a vow to not hold lands. But they're human beings like anybody else. You're not going to get very far with threatening a maester directly um, because they don't have, a, you know, they're not going to have kids to take care of. They're not going to have a lot of external uh, parts to themselves that you can threaten. You can, of course, threaten them with physical harm. That's going to work on them probably as well as it went on just about anybody. But one thing you might be able to do uh, is, is threaten their family. If you find out who this guy's family is, you might be able to threaten his family and say, hey, maester blank. I know who your cousin is. I'm gonna I'm gonna come after your cousin if if you don't tell me this something I want to hear about this lord's plans or tell me is this woman pregnant? Yeah, that's something that comes up later with Marjorie Tyrell, the, the notion of whether or not she's pregnant. Meister Cassell has you know examined her, etc. So there's a lot we just you know, there's a lot they know that we can't always know. Uh, 
So, uh, well, let's talk a bit about Ravens, just in general, uh, just to kind of uh, people can understand a bit more how they work because it's it's hard to understand precisely what these birds do. We're, we're going to save some of that information for later. We want to go do a brief primer on that to at least uh, make that a little more understood. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, each maester has its own ravenry, and uh, and I'm assuming that many of them, if not all, um, I don't remember Master Lewin having one, but Mr. Raymond definitely had one in Sam, and having a steward to actually tend to the, help him attend to the ravens, because as we said before, they are quite old people, um, because they've been such learned scholars for so long. So um, each cage has to be marked with the location the raven came from. This is so you can identify, okay, I need to send a message to King's Landing. This is the raven I used for that. Um, so basically, if you had the wrong raven in the wrong cage, then you're going to have a problem because that raven is going to fly to the wrong castle, which could be a pretty big deal if you don't want that other castle to know what you're sending, what information you're sending. Um, and they, they're very similar in how early Europeans had used to communicate um, over long distances um, by using uh, carrier pigeons. And the way they trained them, I'm assuming they're doing the same thing here, is the raven would actually come from that location. So, like, let's say you had a King's Landing raven, it would come from King's Landing. So then you would just manually transport it back, say, to the Citadel, and you want to send a message to the King's Landing, you know, put, attach the message and just let it fly, and it's going to go home. So, um... Not as, yeah, it's not as fancy as it sounds. It's just telling it basically the bird's just going home. <laughs> but <laughs> something about these birds that and this is a real-world thing. They have some sort of, uh, it's almost like a homing beacon. They just know where to go. It's not something that scientists really understand, but it's a real-world thing as well as something that Martin's about to. Obviously, yeah. he's changed. <laughs> it's really so, the obviously, so obviously, the advantages would be, you know, to, you know, obviously, they're going to get there a lot faster than by sending a rider. Um, however, uh, the birds are much probably easier to kill and taken out and people learning your secrets or whatever the case may be. We saw that in, in Game of Thrones for sure. Um, so every time, you know, uh, who was it? Uh, the old, old guy, the twins. Walter Frey. Walter Frey, every time he sent a raven, they were shooting down left and right out of the air. Um, so that, that's definitely a disadvantage, whereas, like, you know, the rider might be able to try to avoid them, or if he had to, fight his way through to get the message through, where a raven could not do that. So... There is a toss-up as to you know, the advantages and disadvantages of saying these types of communications. A rider could also have a mesmerized message, and not uh, so that, you know if he was captured, he might have be carrying a fake message, uh, and he would be telling the real one you know by voice. That's one thing also that's an advantage of a rider. But but let's move on to some specific people who are actually maesters or who are studying to be maesters or who. Had studied to be maesters, people who had basically been in and around the Citadel and poor people like that. We'll start with someone that was mentioned before, Alaris the Sphinx. Uh, sh she slash he. <laughs> it's, this is a, this yeah, is a, that's it's, yeah. It's we touched on this before. Uh, we talked about her, uh, even though it's a, supposed supposedly a male character. Alaris backwards is Sorella. Sorella is the fourth Sand Snake, daughter of Oberyn Martell. Mm -hmm. uh, she is taking after her father, like all the others do, uh, sort of in in pieces. Uh, Oberyn himself had forged maybe six six, six links of a chain. I guess we know that. Um, and that because they said that he forged half a chain, 
we know that around six links is about half a chain. We could say like between 10 and 15 links is a full chain. So I don't know if that's different for a fat man. I, I do wonder. <laughs> fat neck maesters have to work harder. I do wonder if Sam will have to be there for a much longer. Fat neck maesters have to have 20 chains, 20 links. <laughs> to clarify what that means, a maester becomes a maester when his chain is long enough to fit around his neck. That it may not be. There may be a little more to it than that, but that's the best we can tell from the text at this point. George hasn't specifically told us that. Hey, eight links and you're a maester. Ten links, you're a maester. No. But we can gather that it's around twelve. But we do know. Yeah, we can. We can, we, are, we can guess, and we're we, we feel like it's a very good guess that six is roughly half, if not exactly half. So. You know, give or take one or two based on the uh, circumference of a particular <laughs> person's neck. <Yeah. laughs> well, and some maesters have very tight chains. It's always harder on the on the fat guys, isn't it? Yeah. And we've heard reference of some maesters having very very tight chains. Yeah, Mar when we get to Marwin, that's a, that's a particularly important reference. Uh, a, t a chain, uh, you know, it's tight enough to choke him, so we know that he would just had just barely become a maester. But we'll get to him in a minute. The choker. Yeah. <laughs> So, Sorella, more on Sorella, she has forged three links in the past year. So she's, uh, compared to some other people, we stories we've heard of how quickly people progress. That's pretty fast. That's yeah. maybe not a genius-level student, but that's, uh, you know, that's a honor student. That's a advanced class type student, we'll say. So she's moving on sure, pretty quickly. Her, her, her uh, gender. Yeah, there you go. And, uh, right. <laughs> if there's a we before we talked about we talked about how some of the medals the med, each medal corresponds to a particular discipline yeah. and most of the medals we actually don't know which discipline they correspond to we know that black iron is bravery and that silver is healing slash poison so we know the red viper studied that one so, uh, so yeah, Sorella probably has as well. One. Yeah, yeah, if there's some, if there's a gender bending link, <laughs> Sorella has that one for sure. Maybe she's gonna teach that class later. <laughs> so is this where I insert the theme for the crying game? <laughs> there you go. Um, so uh, a little more about her. It does seem like she's sort of like following in his footsteps a bit. Um, kind of learning, following his. Uh, will she stay to become a full maester? Probably not, because I don't know if she'd be able to keep continue to conceal the fact that she's a woman this whole time. Uh -huh. um, but I, I think it's hilarious that she's pulled it off for this long, and mm -hmm. uh, curious how that's going to end. But well, I, I really suspect somebody knows. Somebody, yeah. you know, uh, some wise maester, hopefully on her side. Yeah, someone that's uh, not going to enter it. Yeah, you know. you're playing your ruse here. I know who you are. <laughs> I wonder how many other women have tried to become maesters in the past. There are all sorts of tales of women. That would be interesting. Masquerading is, is something. And I wonder, True. some women, that they, they don't get to learn much normally unless you go to the Citadel. That's what you send you know, your scholarly son off to do. And I wonder mm -hmm. if it's happened before. We have some. I mean, it's kind of a... It's a question for George. Pillowy robes. You could certainly hide the, the shape of your body. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, after a while... It might be hard to hide. Yeah, if she, yeah. Yeah, if she was like a, you know, like a particularly busty woman. Uh, yeah, if you're like Arianne. All slender. It'll probably work. <laughs> if you're like Arianne Martell, that might be difficult to hide. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she's, she wouldn't be able to pull it off. Um, but there's another part of her, aspect of her character that is very peculiar. Uh, Maester Eamon, uh, he kind of, during one of his feverish moments traveling away from uh, Bravos when he's on the ship, the Cinnamon Wind with Sam, 
and he's he's clearly dying. He's dying slowly, and and he's fading in health. He has a lot of insightful fever dream type things that he half says, half rants at Sam, and they're very interesting. Some of them we'll get to later, but one that applies right here is he says the Sphinx is the Riddler, not the Sphinx. Not well, the Riddle. I'm sorry, is the Riddle not the yeah? Is the Riddle not the Riddler? No, the Riddler, not the Riddle. Okay, so I'm back with you. <laughs> well, I should have let Shay handle that. Anyway, blurts <laughs> that out. And Sam has no idea what he's talking about. And then he meets Alaris, whose nickname is the Sphinx. So he immediately thinks, well, there's a riddle right there. She's not actually a she or he. So that maybe that's the there's riddle. There's also some but, Sphinxes. But how could that relate? Yes, yeah, so we don't understand. But there's also, yeah, there's also, there's also two Valyrian Sphinxes outside the Citadel. Yeah. That are there and... I, I, I don't know what he could be talking about, to be quite honest. I did, I, it's also weird to me that he would talk about her. I, the, whole, the whole Sphinx is the Riddler and not the Riddle thing is a riddle to me. And Sam, when, he, when he, Sam hears this yeah. nickname, the Sphinx, he immediately blurts that line out, the Sphinx is the Riddler, not the <laughs> Riddle. And she's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> He's like, do you know what that means? And she's like, no, I have no idea what you mean. So... <laughs> That's an open question that's very peculiar. Uh, yeah. Another, yeah, so we'll, we're going to touch on those Valyrian Sphinxes a bit, too. Yeah, either one feature of those Town. could be a red herring, I, like a really good yeah. one. I mean, it would be perfect to have some obvious person like Valerius the Sphinx there, and we think that that's Sam, and we think that that's her, and then it's actually more connected to... Valyrian Sphinx is representing something. Or... Yeah. We'll, we'll get more into I it. I think what makes it particularly peculiar is that Maester Eamon makes it sound like it's this big, huge reveal, this big, important mystery. To us, it looks like it's just the fact that a guy is pretending, a girl is pretending to be a guy. And how could that possibly be all that important? I guess we'll see. Yeah. Well, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> so, so all we know has nothing to do with it. Uh, okay. So, our next little portion <laughs> that Don't. we're uh, talking about we're we're covering Marwin the Mage, who we've we've covered, we've, we've talked about him in passing, like a few different podcasts for sure. Yeah. Um, I'll first go into the description of Marwin, uh, and then and then Aziz is going to talk about where we hear about him first, which is all the way back in the Game of Thrones. Uh, Marwin is he's large and burly and angry looking, and not exactly what I would picture a mage as being like. He's kind of a or a master, really. or a master <laughs> kind of circumventing the trope of you know a scholarly man. He's very angry looking. He's large. His nose is broken multiple times. His teeth are stained red, uh, and he's called the Mastiff. And so obviously the quote I was referring to refers to him. Uh, He's got a really low reputation. He's just generally, like, not what you would consider a scholar to be. Uh, there's a lot of gossip that goes around with him. and the, I like the gossip a little bit, what they say about him. People said that he kept company with whores and hairy Ibanese and pitchbacks, pitch black summer islanders. And that point in particular I like because that really shows the how it's gossip and how it's been exaggerated because the Ibanese, Ibn or Ib, it's, I, they, they refer to it as either way. Um, that is the most northern nation that there is uh, in, in the known world. And the Summer Islands are the most southern area that we see, like, yeah, like that, that we see people from. So for, for, for those two people, two nations to be mentioned is pretty cool and, is, uh, and just makes you see that it's obviously an exaggeration. Um, and, he, they, oh, and they say that he converses with them in their own tongues nonetheless, which is, uh, seems really ridiculous. And they say that he sacrifices to queer gods at the sailors' temples. Uh, 
they say that he, they saw him down in the undercity and in the rat pits and black brothels, consorting with mummers and singers and sell swords and beggars and all sorts of unsavory types. And someone even whispered that he had killed a man with his fists. And considering he's large and burly, that's not so ridiculous. Uh, and I mean, most of this is exaggerated, but he, I think he obviously does consort with the unsavory types. And I do think that he is, is down there in the city and out doing stuff, and maybe he does get in some actual fist fights and whatnot. So basically, to sum some of that up, it, it, like, it's, like I, say, I said, that a lot of that is gossip, essentially. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's to be taken with a grain of salt, because the when you take go gossip in general is tends to be unreliable. Gossip that comes from people that don't understand the subject, mm -hmm. the subject matter, or people who are already predisposed to have a negative opinion of someone of his character, uh, that's going to promote a lot of wild stories. So, Maester, uh, so Maester Marwyn is, Archmaester Marwyn, yes, uh, Arch to be clear, is a very, is a, a controversial figure, but a lot of that is because of how different he is from the standard Maester Mole. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about where he appears, because this is really fun. This also gets to shows us a bit of George's writing style, and it shows us how he likes to introduce us to characters sort of after they've already been introduced. Um, and you would never, ever catch these references to Marwyn unless you reread it or unless you listen to us or <laughs> another, another uh, source of information that, that brings these little tidbits out, because it's so incredibly subtle. Marwyn appears on screen as a fairly important, potentially important character at the end of Feast for Crows. He's mentioned a bit at the prologue. He appears in the last chapter. But he's mentioned many times before that. Uh, relatively many. The first time he pops up is a very unusual place. I love this. He pops up from Miri Mazdur, as in the, the woman, the lambman priest that heals, uh, sort of, uh, tries to heal Drogo. And that didn't work out so well, but uh, for we know that from George that it wasn't it was his fault for pulling off that poultice. He should have let the medicine do its work. <laughs> but she learned. She says uh, she, she she when she met him, uh, he had a chain about his neck that was so tight as like to choke him. And and Jora, Sir Jora, verifies this by kind of asking her some questions because she at first he, when he hears the name uh, uh, a, a maester from the Sunset Land and how she puts it, Jora kind of perks up and is like wants to get her to prove that she knows what she's talking about. So she asks him a couple questions to prove that uh, he's a maester. So she kind of gets him to describe what he looks like. And when she describes the chain, Jorah, uh, that kind of satisfies Jorah and, and makes him realize, okay, she knows she's, she's probably telling the truth because that's what a maester would have, would be wearing, this chain of many metals. Uh, so, but what she tells him is the secrets of the body. That's supposedly where she learns a lot of her knowledge about the inner workings of the human body is from him, which is a little creepy considering another character who's going to come up later. We're going to talk about Maester, uh, ex-Maester Kyburn, uh, who is big into chopping up bodies. So uh, we'll get into that later. But um, he traded, apparently he traded knowledge with her. In other words, they swapped arcane secrets, so to speak. Marwyn taught her about the body, and he taught her some things. Now, what else did Marwyn learn? We learned that he was kind of all over the place. So, <laughs> he, he traded those maesterly secrets to people all over the world for other arcane, occult knowledge, making him a pretty interesting guy, i got to say, uh, especially <laughs> considered the, considering the way the other maesters were so 
anti that sort of learning. Yeah, you're right. Um, and Kyburn is, um, yeah, she mentions at one point that amongst all the maesters, only Marwin was the one interested in talking about the supernatural, about ghosts and such and things. And, uh, and Kyburn's interest in the secrets of the body is, I think, probably what drew a lot of the allure to him. Um, and this included, like, cutting open the living, uh, which is basically how he got expelled from the Citadel. And we'll get into that in just a few minutes. Um, but, yeah, that's basically what they used to call vivisection. Um, and it's been practiced, unfortunately, in modern-day society, particularly during World War II. We won't go into details for obvious reasons. This is a PG... <laughs> type of podcast, but yeah, they were open, doing various experiments, uh, maybe say, hey, you know what, I wonder if I added this chemical to their liver, what would happen? And then we're sit there and watch them and they're, while they're struggling for their life, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, he, so back to Marwin, though, he, uh, we, as we said, he is the archmaster of the higher mysteries, which is, of course, corresponding to the metals, that's the Valyrian steel lake. So he wears the ring, rod, and mask of Valyrian steel, which is the, uh, the, the sort of the high station. That basically means he is the resident expert on the higher mysteries. Yes. Um, yeah. So he's the go-to guy there. Now, two other archmaesters are, were specifically told by, uh, by some other characters, some of these acolytes that uh, Pate is hanging out with in the prologue, that they mentioned that Pariston, Archmaesters Pariston and Ryan both think uh, our, uh, Marwin is unsound, quote-unquote. Now, take that with a grain of salt. This guy clearly is intelligent, knows what he's doing, and he's, he's gotten results from some of these occult things. So he's not just a crazy man. But because these other maesters are so conservative by the book, they're, they're, they're big into things you can see and touch and, and experiment on rather than are called uh, unpredictable things. So that I think that has a lot to do with why they consider him unsound. It's not specifically that they think he's literally insane. It's just that they, well, maybe they do, but that's based on uh, just the, the differences in, in how he studies versus how, how they pursue knowledge. So once again, it's a kind of a case of unreliable narrator. You can't take what other people say about Marwin too seriously because they, none of them particularly like him or trust him or really understand what he's all about. So you kind of cut through the haze there and kind of see this character is really important. Um, he has some interesting thoughts on Maester Eamon. Uh, he believes that Maester Eamon uh, was sent to the Wall because of his blood, because he's a Targaryen, and because the, the Targaryens are associated, perhaps, with magic and the occult a bit. Um, but interestingly enough... Eamon uh, gives some different reasons. So. Yeah. He thinks, yeah. Damon tells us that he did it because he was higher up in, in line for the throne. Uh, as we know, his little brother Aegon became king, so even though he was maester of the Citadel, he was still, he's still high up, like, as you can see, maesters of the Citadel can still leave their posts. It's not as binding as being with the Night's Watch. Right. Yeah. So, so, that was, so that's really important. Um, it, it's possible now... On one hand, that could mean that, that Marwin's a little paranoid. He's a little, maybe he's kind of the Westeros version of a conspiracy theory mm -hmm. nut. But he could be, uh, it could be a little of column A and a little of column B. Perhaps, you know, going to, the, going to the wall was a part of their way to make sure he wasn't a threat to his brother. But also, the other maesters may have kind of wanted him out. So it may have been a little of both. 
Um, so it doesn't mean that Marwin is wrong. It's just the reason that he tends to credit, whereas Eamon himself telling John and maybe some others, he says that's why he, he went himself. So uh, it's sort of two sides of the same coin, two sides of the same story. We're not, we're not really sure which is closer to the truth. But there's no reason to think that, the, that either of them is lying. It could, they could both be true. Uh, now, so that, that, that brings us to some of the things he says to Sam. Now, Marwin, when, he, when, he, when Sam is finally face-to-face -face with him, Marwin warns him, don't be talking about the others. Don't be talking about uh, the War for the Dawn. Don't be talking about Azor Ahai. Don't be talking about any of that stuff unless you want poison in your porridge, uh, which to me that sounds a little paranoid because, hey, Marwin's been running around talking about this stuff all this time and they haven't killed him. Yeah. So why haven't they, killed, why haven't they bothered to kill Sam yet then? I mean, if he's asking all these questions. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think maybe maybe it's because Sam is new, uh, and for Marwin, maybe it's because they're afraid of him. Uh, and asking questions, having an acolyte like Sam disappear, a novice disappear, maybe that just doesn't create enough questions. But if an archmaester disappeared, it turns up poisoned, uh, too many other maesters are going to be around maybe, that, that maybe can maybe Marwin know. Maybe Marwin is just, he, he knows better than to get poisoned. He knows how to stop a poison. Yeah. He's got his links in. Right, he's got his steel. He's got his silver link. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I think fear, in other words, because they're not just fear of reprisal, but fear that he would be able to detect it or that it wouldn't work or that he knows the antidote. Mm -hmm. uh, to, I think, we know he's tried, someone's tried to poison him before. That's why he says that. Maybe he's Very good point. It's possible to be a poisoning or two. Perfect cool. example would be, I mean, uh, the fact that, that he's been around so long and everything, who's to say that he wouldn't be able to turn it around and reverse it or... You know, uh, yeah. obviously, you provide an antidote for it. He's got the link. He's obviously a maester in that discipline. Yeah, so. and and with his real world stories, if somebody say like uh, Mithridates the Great, uh, a, a, a king who a king of Pontus who was a big problem for Rome for a long time. He grew up. He grew up in a court where poisoning was really common. And as a child, he started taking small doses of all these poisons as a child. So that by the time he was of age, he was immune to most of them. It's sort of like out of Princess Bride, how. Uh, one of the main characters was immune to iocane poison because he had become a, he had taken it in small doses. Perhaps Archmaster Marwin has inured himself to certain poisons as well. Or maybe the maesters are afraid that he has, and thus they aren't going to try. A lot of possibilities there. Basically, the, the, the short version uh, is that I think that they're afraid to try. <laughs> they wouldn't be so afraid with Sam, though. And not to um, mention the fact that he is, he has... You know, he, he's a, he has a discipline of the higher learnings. Yeah. So, hey, what, he, what else he couldn't do in regard? <laughs> uh, so, let's take his thoughts on prophecy, which is something that we're going to devote an entire podcast or two or three, maybe, because prophecy is a big part of, yeah. of uh, Song of Ice and Fire, and it's not done in a normal fantasy way. Uh, some aspects of it are, no are quite normal, and some aspects of it are very not. Uh, George loves to toy with that trope. In some cases, we have a huge prophecy that's very important. In other cases, we have a prophecy that turns out to be something very minor. Like, there was a one thing that was predicted, a vision was of a giant destroying a castle made of snow. And everyone thinks that, oh, giants are going to come and destroy Winterfell. Well, that turned out to be no. little Robert Aaron destroying Sansa's snow castle with a doll. <laughs> yeah. and the doll relative to the snow castle was a giant so that's a, probably the best example of a prophecy turning out to be completely nothing basically nothing 
Uh, on the other hand, there's prophecies that turn out to be huge. So, uh, and that's sort of what Marwin tells us. He throws them out there like their prophecy is unreliable, but it's real. Uh, so, one of one of the things that that he's famous for is a is called the Book of Lost Books. Now, this is something that he apparently wrote earlier in his career. Uh, it's been around for a while, and we are introduced to it. In a very unusual place, we're introduced to it on the Iron Islands, which is uh -huh. not something you you don't expect to find books and people reading them uh -huh. on the Iron Islands. Do they even have maesters there? They do, actually. Yeah. Not many, but we'll see it a little bit later that they don't really, uh, they, they have a hard time making, uh, making, getting people to listen to them up there. I bet. <laughs> so Marwin, uh, basically, well, Asha Greyjoy kind of comes into... Uh, her uncle, uh, uh, Roderick the Reader, uh, who is a Harlaw, and the Harlaws are one of the crucial houses uh, in the whole Greyjoy schema. They're, they're probably the top supporter of the Greyjoy, mm -hmm. Greyjoy house, specifically. Uh, Asha's mother is a, is a, is a Harlaw. Uh, so, he's and reading... A Greyjoy episode. What's that? We did mention the Harlows in uh, the Greyjoy episode. We did, we did. Uh, yeah, a little name drop for ourselves there. We have a good Greyjoy history episode that we did a while back. Uh, yep. So, what he talks about in his book is prophecy. It's, it's a book on prophecy. Some of them he probably mentions that uh, are examples of prophecies that, that you know didn't work out the way people thought they would, and some that kind of proved perfectly on. Uh, a good example, one of the very famous ones, is he, in this book, he claims to have found three pages of uh, visions from the daughter of Aenar Targaryen. Now, this daughter uh, was a maiden, which apparently that... This is something that goes to our own history. Maiden women are apparently <laughs> better at prophecy than anyone else, including men. I don't know where that... I think that might be something from our own human history that generates from priestess to priestess class from, from ancient societies. But... <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> she, <laughs> she predicted the doom, the great cataclysm of volcanic activity that destroyed Valyria in a split second. She predicted that. So that was a prophecy that came very true. So uh, things that she wrote down, anything that could be recovered that she wrote down, of course, most of what she had written down would have been destroyed by the, this cataclysm, but... The Valyrian Empire spread itself out really far, so you got to think that some of the things that were written made its made its way all over the place, and they were so ubiquitous for so long that you can't assume that just because their whole peninsula was destroyed, that doesn't mean that you know all the other information was. Anyway, I don't want to stay on this too long. The point is that the things that she wrote have a lot of authenticity to them because she predicted this major event. So he having written her have him having some things from her in his book kind of makes it kind of tantalizing. You kind of wish you could read a few pages of it yourself. Uh -huh. But uh, it's basically a collection of tomes and scrolls and tidbits and this is that, this and that from all over the world. We know Marwin's been to, Sh to Ashai. He's possibly been to Ib and Summer Islands. Uh -huh. We don't know. You know apparently those are languages. But, uh, but a lot of them are incomplete. So uh, so that's, that's kind of where we're at um, with, his, with that book. You are muted, Steve. Sorry about that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that makes him a pretty well-traveled person, to say the least. 
Um, <laughs> we've been as far as Ib, which if you ever get to see the map, and unfortunately it's behind my computer screen, so I can't really show it to you, but it's if you look at the Dothraki Sea, the easternmost portion of it is about due north of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's far, far away. It's pretty <laughs> far out there. It's, it's pretty far, far out there. Yeah, so the fact that somebody from Ib, you know, is in West Coast is a pretty big deal. And uh, so the the question that I had to beg though is, uh, you know, exactly where is Marlon the Mage? Yeah, he see he at the end of <laughs> at the end of Feast for Crows, it's the last chapter. He meets with Sam and then he just leaps and and Sam's like, where is he going? And he's like, well, he's going. And they're telling him, well, he's going to the docks. He's going to see Danny. He said he was going to go, and so he's going. He didn't waste any time. He's like, i got to get there soon. One of the reasons he wants to get there soon is he realizes that news of her is starting to spread everywhere, and he knows the Citadel is going to send a representative. It's funny that he is from the Citadel. He's an Archmaster of the Citadel. But he wants to get there before the official representative of the Citadel It's funny that he doesn't think that it's possible that he can try to be the official representative. He doesn't think that he can, like, bribe or convince anyone or anything. He doesn't even consider that a possibility or a waste of his time. He's like, screw it. Maybe they will pick me. They probably won't. I'm gone. He just leaves. So he does immediately... In fact, he's trying to get on the... He intends, if possible, to get on the same ship Sam just got off of because they're still there. Uh, And he knows that it's a fast ship because it's one of the swan ships from the Summer Islands, and they're, they're apparently really swift. So, uh, you, you figure ships that come from island nations are probably pretty well built. Uh, so, but by all through Dance of Dragons, we see a couple other people show up. Some other people that have prophesied to show up, uh, mm-hmm. but he's not among them. So, at this point, now don't forget, Feast for Crows and Dance of Dragons overlap each other. They're not consecutive books. Feast for yes. Crows takes up by the end of Feast for Crows takes up about the first two thirds of Dance of Dragons. So it's not that strange that he hasn't showed up yet. I've seen some very awkward theories that he's Makoro in disguise. I really don't buy that. Uh, People point to the similarities in their stature, that they're really really big guys. But frankly, Marwan's a big man, but Makoro is a huge man. And apparently he's pretty well-known in Volantis. Yes, he's kind of a well-known red priest, and and the chief red priest specifically sends him to do this job of of being Danny's right-hand man and and helping her. Uh, So I really can't see that as being him in disguise. Crazy. And as an aside, it's it's one of the unfortunate side effects of George introducing the concept of glamours of, of people who could be somebody else because that just gave rise to too many just awkward theories. Oh, it could be this person because it could be in glamour. It's just too many of those are floating around. So I don't think we know where he's at. I think he's still trying to make his way there. And don't forget, we saw how hard it was for Quentin to get to Marie. He had to lie about joining a sellsword company <laughs> with the plan of deserting the sellsword company. And don't forget how dangerous it is to desert a sellsword company. <laughs> they, they will cut your foot off if they don't execute you. Something really bad in yeah. light of that. So, it's a Benny and Night's Watch. It really is. So Yeah, yeah. So now Marwin is no Quentin. Quentin is, has no experience with these parts of the world. He's not a man of the world. He hasn't been these places before, whereas Marwin has. So you got to figure Marwin's a lot more capable but just to say, Marwins can't magically make some ship's captain want to go to the middle of what's literally a gi- about to be a gigantic war zone. Yes. So, and, and it's not like that's hidden knowledge. A lot of people know that the Valentine fleet maybe is heading there. We know as readers that the Greyjoy fleet is showing up there. Yeah. So, I mean, the fact that Marwin hasn't appeared is probably more a case of the whole chaotic... Uh, the chaos surrounding Marine right now. Plus, <laughs> Danny's not even there. So if he gets there, 
he'll find out that she, uh, you know, maybe she'll hear the rumors about him, her being dead, about how she disappeared over the Dothraki Sea on the back of her dragon. Who knows? Yeah. So, we, but it's possible that he's just not going to make it. Maybe he'll die. <laughs> maybe he'll. I would be very disappointed. I would be disappointed too. I, <laughs> I think it's a bit. A lot has been set up there, but but it's got to be possible. One last bit on Marwyn. The glass candle. We talked about the glass candles in the last episode. That's uh, obsidian, right? Yes, yes. they're they're apparently made of obsidian, also known as dragon glass. Yes. And there's four of them in the citadel, as we mentioned last uh, last episode. And in this last chapter, it's mentioned that the of Feast for Crows. It's mentioned by one of the acolytes that is involved in discussion that the glass candles, like the glass candles, what do they matter? They don't. They have no one's been able to light those. And Leo Tyrell jumps in with, "Oh yes, they have. One of them has lit." This one that Marwyn has. We're not clear on how it got lit. Yeah. Maybe he managed to light it. But also another theory is that the birth of the dragons back into the world and signals the return of more magic to Westeros into the area. And so that could be why the glass candles are burning because they they apparently I think they used to burn. So maybe it just turned on. Maybe yeah, it just the sure. conditions were right. It just that's personally how I read it, at least. I, yeah. I, I kind of it seemed like a very, a, a very uh, symbolic thing about the about about magic. I, I like to imagine. I like to imagine Marwyn sitting there, thinking to himself, just working on his usual thing he's working on, studying his old scrolls, and in the back of his head, he's kind of always a little angry that the Citadel doesn't pay more attention to these things. That he's one of the few guys that cares about these things, and he's just sitting there. Suddenly, the glass candle just comes on. Yeah, and he just looks at it. And gets this satisfied smile on his yeah. face. He's like, "Damn right." Yeah, I think like <laughs> he's like, "I told you so." Damn great. <laughs> <I mean, laughs> it's the same concept they brought up in the, the TV show this past season with the House of the Undying about how their magic has become more powerful now yeah. because of yes, the birth of dragons, and that's why they wanted to keep the dragons and keep Danny chained up to be the mother of the dragons, that sort of thing. So it really kind of plays into that whole you know line of thinking of yeah. being you know that because of the birth of dragons now magic is back in the world that has not been around for you know at least a thousand years well at least three hundred years uh, like some long some length of time seasonal it, you, you almost get the sense that it's kind of seasonal not like a winter spring summer and fall like much longer cycles and this is the return yeah. of magic to the, world. the comet perhaps heralded it yeah. birth of dragon all these different things we don't know which is the chicken which is the egg but clearly the things are all coming relatively close together so yeah uh, definitely connected related to that whole thing the dragons and yeah well the others, yeah, whether perhaps. the dragons are what you know another sign of magic coming back just like the glass glass candles are or whether the dragons kind of Heralded the, the, the return of magic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, the Krakens too. Yeah, and and who's to say they're not connected? So okay, well let's uh, let's move on. Let's get into let's talk about some more specific maesters. Yeah. Oh well, well, let's talk about Kyburn uh, a little bit. Um, I guess that's pronounced it Kyburn. It's spelled Q U I. George specifically said that however we want to pronounce things, we can go ahead and pronounce it that way. He does not care how we pronounce things. He think like he pronounces things, and he thinks that maybe he pronounces a little bit wrong at times too. So you can say it however you want. I mean, he pronounces, for example, he pronounces it called Black Eye. Yeah, Black Eye, which is wrong. I can't get my head around that one. But I'm called Kyburn, which is spelled Q Y B U R N. Um, and the, th the interesting thing about him is he's actually was stripped of his chain 
uh, from the Citadel uh, because he was performing such wacky, crazy experiments on live people. And they, we kind of discussed this earlier a little bit where, um, and I, I was imagining, you know, basically live vivisections because we know for a fact that uh, we did hear screams from at least one experiment. And, uh, you know, and he was just, you know, he would just, you know, inject this and pour that and here, drink that, you know, kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, this kind of makes him a pretty frightening character. Uh, he's right up there, not quite as bad, but almost as bad as Ramsey. Ramsey the Bastard, Ramsey the Bastard of the North, Ramsey Snow. Anyways, um, anyways, he's someone you don't want to meet. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so think of it as like a, like a you know the old fifties horror films, mad scientist, Frankenstein kind of thing, and experiencing experimenting on living humans, you know maybe being kind of along the lines of Doctor Mengele of World War Two or the Japanese on the Chinese during World War Two. Um, so because of the shivers. Yeah, I mean, and his cruelty probably is what got him his job um, by Cersei. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, because we know Cersei to be a pretty cruel person, and she saw this guy and was like, "Oh, damn, <laughs> oh, that was bad." He, he gives and, her uh, like, a, "Hey, I rode with Vargo Hode and the Brave Companions. I'm good yeah. with some stumps." <laughs> that guy loves it. He's like, "Who's I better?" I sewed up your brother's stump. Yeah, he sewed up Jamie's stump, and uh, he's he's able to say, "Hey, I saved his arm." He, you know, he almost lost his whole arm, but I did that. And mm -hmm. so Cersei gives him that kind of you'll you you'll do kind of look and gives him the threatening, you know, if you don't do then, you know, you'll you'll you might meet an end similar to those you've given to other people. Now what's interesting about him to me is that he's 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 got this very dark seeming character for all these things that Steve has said, paint him as this very obviously he's very sinister and evil. But as far as his personal you look at him, the way he's described, he's just like this old kind of like very simple-looking, unassuming man. You know, you would not guess just this, this level of just darkness he has in him. He's, he's almost like a sociopath, and I'm not even sure he enjoys cruelty. Which is he just he just wants to learn more about life and death. Yeah, he, he just, just <laughs> wants to know the that's all. He's just completely amoral. He does, it's not that he likes torturing people; that he just doesn't care. <laughs> he's and, uh, he's a nice guy in person. I, I can yeah. only, I can only imagine that maybe he has made some interesting discoveries and. and and stuff like that with regards to the body and his experiments. Like some of the some of the things we found we found out about the body were because of some some things that people really didn't like them doing on on human bodies and experiments and things like that throughout history. Yeah, like, it's, yeah, it just paints him in a bad light. But he, in the in the long run, his, his studies might actually kind of help. What's well, kind of how uh, in, uh, after World War Two is how you know our own government actually you know. Uh, hired up many of these Nazis who performed many of these crazy experiments to find out what they learned. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a we we're not glad you did the research. We're very upset that you did the research, but we're going to still benefit from it. We're going to learn from yeah. it yeah, because I mean it's it's kind of gross to to learn from those torturous things. But hey, he did learn some valuable things, and it can be used. Of course. We're going to get to one of the most important things he may have learned from his studies in just a second. But before that, um, let's talk about some of the specifics of, of, of his plot lines and how he's involved with Cersei. 
Yeah, uh, Cersei actually uh, sends uh, one, of, one of her handmaidens, Senel, um, with very, very dubious evidence as to the reason why, um, to yeah. experiment on. Um, fortunately, she didn't last very long. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, some of other girls, actually, other people, mostly girls, I should say, uh, followed her and were part of his experiments, as well as uh, Thali Stokeworth, who was the sister of Lollies. And Lollies, if you remember, is the one who was pretty much gang-raped in the middle of King's Landing after the riot of King Joffrey. Yeah, she yeah. She has a bastard uh, name that they named Tyrion Tanner. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bastard, yeah. So, and then, but by the way, this is part of how Bronn, as a quick aside, this is part of how Bronn was able to rise to Lord of Stokeworth, essentially, is uh, partly through... Cersei, it's, it's, it's actually kind of ironic, because Cersei has tried to get rid of Bronn, and she kind of botched it up, and by helping, by uh, give, basically giving Felice to Kyburn, uh to torture to death, uh, to experiment on, she sort of opened the way up for Bronn to rise up through marriage, because, you know, he married Lollis, and then... Uh, now the air. Single combat, and of course we know how that went. Braun, you know, destroyed. You know, that was not a close contest at all. Braun, much better fighter. <laughs> you know, honor right. bound. But we know how we see how Braun handles people who fight with honor. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> if you remember, Braun went ahead and lanced his horse rather than you know <laughs> trying to do a normal joust. Well, so, and, and we saw that pretty much in uh, in the TV show when Braun actually took out. Uh, uh, Lady Lysis, um, her honor guard, uh, I don't remember his name, and uh, <laughs> uh, he spanked him. Uh, he spanked him with a sword. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't really, yeah, just, that was great. So, so Steve, tell, let's, talk, let's, let's also talk about um, his experiments on Gregor. Sure. Yeah, the Gregor Clegane stuff, that was interesting. That's, and this is after the Sand Snake actually killed, or I'm sorry, um, wounded. Um, Gregor Clegane actually killed Sand Snake, but, um, but he was severely injured after his duel, and he was poisoned because he always carried a poison spear. So this is where things get a kind of little muddled, but okay, so it indicates that the venom is from Manicor. And a manicor is basically this beast with a human head, a lion's body, and the tail of a scorpion. And this legendary manicor appears to have been relatively common in Valerian statuary. And we actually find this on one of the gargoyles that adorn the fortress of Dragonstone. And it is actually also the, the uh, symbol of the Hal arms of House Lorch, which we, of course, we know Armory Lorch uh, hails from. So this venom actually uh, was somehow slowed down. I'm sorry. I was going to say I'm sorry to interrupt. The the manicure is also really tiny. It's it's like the size it fits in the palm of your hand, which is different from yes. manicures in other books and, and legends. It's where it's size like, of a giant beetle. Yeah. Um. So somehow, um, apparently, and we're assuming this. This is all out of assumption because we really don't know the hundred percent aspect of it. It's never specifically said in the books, but supposedly, Kyburn has somehow revived the corpse of Gregor Clegane, and he arms it in such a way that it's got this incredibly thick plate armor. And somehow, um, it's questionable as are the other victims using this. You know, animation of Gregor Clegane. 
you know, maybe did they get certain aspects or certain, uh, uh, oh, man, I don't even know the word for it, uh, just certain attributes from these other people. Yeah, from um, the lever has been shot by... Yeah, yeah. Here, 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 here's Rafa. Yeah, <laughs> here's Cersei's uterus. <laughs> so, so, so that would basically make Kyburn a necromancer of sorts because, I mean, he did raise the dead. Yeah, this is it's his first example of doing such. We want, kind of wonder, is he going to do more? Is he going to get a chance yeah. to do more corpses? Are you dead? It's, it's kind of a subversion of the normal theme. We have bodies rising from the dead via, via kind of religious interference. Yeah. We have the red god through Thoros of Mirror animating Baron yeah. on Baron Catelyn. And then we have the others, obviously, raising the dead. Lord, uh, yeah. Uh, so is this a zombie action going on here? Right. Is he? Is this? Is this a part of the magic that's returned to the world that Kyber's tapping into, or did he discover some sort of long lost art? Uh, we're not sure, but it's it's damn creepy and it's it's interesting and fun. And we know the the result is a near eight foot monster who has taken a vow of silence. So to speak, probably because he can't talk. That's just the party line. That's just their uh, their propaganda. But he's a member of the King's Guard now. This this monster. Yeah. This I like to call him the Kyborg. <laughs> how the how the heck do you get to the King's Guard without speaking <laughs> a word? <laughs> he didn't take his vow clearly. Yeah. I mean, he he, must help. he did the vigil. I guess he could do this the the, the vigil overnight vigil. He would have no. Oh, that's easy for a dead guy. <laughs> but uh, well, I I kind of can't wait to see him fight and wait to see who he's gonna fight. I know that. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. In fact, I think. It's the zombie apocalypse in this song of ice and fire. Is <laughs> George going to tap into the zombie uh, zombie fandom a little? <laughs> yeah, and as I say, it's a decent prediction to see him fighting Sandor later. You know, Sandor has talked about. Oh, that would be interesting. Yeah, of course. For some readers, or some readers are going to be saying, well, "Wait a minute, isn't Sandor dead?" We don't think so. We'll talk about <laughs> that in another episode. Very good. I don't think so. He's still alive. No, San Sandor's still alive. You yeah. might, might be somewhat. You didn't. You yeah. may not have heard it here first, folks. But if you did, we're saying that. We're 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 going to go out there and say that he's alive. We'll, we'll explain why right. in the episode. But but apart from his creepy necromancy and his experimenting on humans, Cersei also points him to be master of whispers, which is interesting. He uh, even though later on he doesn't get to hold that job for very long. Well, rather he does get to hold that job for for a while. But he's also appointed to the small council. That job he doesn't hold for very long. Yeah. It's kind of indicated that he's not very good at it. The, the Master of Whispers part, he doesn't seem to be all that good at. The being on the small council part, he seems to be kind of bad at. So, on one hand, you think that him losing his job is related to the fact that Cersei is kind of losing her grip on power, and it just makes sense to strip the people that she appointed to power as well. Like she, He owes his appointment to Cersei entirely, and no one else probably would allow him to do the things he's doing <laughs> He's the only patron that would feed him, you know, serving girls and other people to experiment on. He, he also tortured the Blue Bard and the false confession against Marjorie Tyrell, uh, things like that. So, basically, there's few other people probably that would allow this guy to have this kind of power. So his appointment is pretty well dependent on Cersei. But it's possible that he's either being manipulated by or working directly with Varys, because we know Varys is still out there. We know he's still working behind the scenes. We saw him 
assassinate Pycelle. We saw him assassinate Kevin. Uh, so, but he doesn't seem to be worried about Kyburn, at least not directly. So either he's feeding Kyburn false information, or he just doesn't care because Kyburn's incompetent at that particular <laughs> aspect. So he's like, whatever, this guy's not, is no big deal, just let him do what he's doing. Because remember what Varus' goal is, he's trying to kind of keep chaos going. He's trying to keep things, he's trying to keep the Lannisters and the Tyrells from, from, from being too much of a strong alliance. So if, if, if Kyburn's doing a bad job, that suits Varus pretty well. Um, so that's kind of, but it is an open question. We don't really know what's going on there. Uh, also, Var is being so anti-magic. Remember the speech he gives to Tyrion about how he hates magic and those who practice it, and that's a big part of why he's anti-Stannis, because Stannis is employing uh, Melisandre, and there's a lot of, you know, from Varys' point of view, he doesn't know that for sure that Melisandre's magic he hasn't seen her, hasn't met her. But the stories about her and the shadow and the fact that she's a shadow binder, she's burning people... That's got to make a guy like Varus, who's very against that sort of thing, that's got to make his, you know, make his, uh, his hackles rise a bit and get him, uh, maybe get him angry. So that's a possibility for the fact that he wouldn't want to work with a, a necromancer. <laughs> so uh, that may not work out so well. But I think that, so it's possible that that's why he was removed from, from his job is because, you know, because he was working with Cersei. But also I think it's because he wasn't doing a very good job. But that's enough. That's that's a good. I think that's enough for Kyburn. Uh, he's a character to watch. He's still around. And um, his one other little tidbit, possibly his knowledge with, with reference to necromancy. Even though he's painted as a bad guy, it would be really ironic if his knowledge actually became important as to like the understanding of what's going on with the whites and other things. So, it'd be kind of funny if he if his knowledge became actually really crucial, despite him being such a creepy, evil just. You know, <laughs> I would love that, even in a kind of disgusted sort of way. <laughs> All right. So our next maester we're going to talk about, or well, Kyron wasn't even really a maester. Ex-maester. Ex-maester. Yeah. But the next full-blown maester that was actually, well, yeah, I think he's the most maester maester that we can have. But, I mean. I think so. Going from the most hated, perhaps, to one of the most loved, if not the most loved. I <laughs> uh, maester. <laughs> he is, uh, you know, he's a Targaryen, and according to the Citadel, and this is something that I think is just ridiculous for them to say, the Citadel has claimed him to be the oldest living person in Westeros. Where they get that, why they think that they would know that, considering there are people in Westeros that don't even know their age, and, like, there are people in Westeros that have never left their little town, and have never seen a maester, it seems pretty ridiculous to proclaim him the oldest living person. We can say he's the oldest known living person, that, but it's, it's still, it's just a weird claim to me. We can claim he's the oldest maester. He's the oldest <laughs> maester, that he can't claim that. That's true. Well, maybe he's a maester longer than anybody else. <laughs> they would probably know because he's older than anybody anyway. <laughs> yeah, but anyways, I, that's just a silly statement. Um, maester Eamon was, as we mentioned this a little bit before, that he was sent to the, cit the Citadel because there are too many claimants ahead of him and he was worried there'd be bloodshed and whatnot. Just, there's just too many Targaryens. It's a common theme that either there are too many Targaryens, there are too few. And, and at this point, there were a little bit too many Targaryens. And um, he became a maester. And he was, after, uh, sometime after he became a maester, he was honored and asked to serve on his father. With the father who sent him to the Citadel has, had now become king, King Makar I. Oh, and yeah. he was asked to serve on his small council, and 
he refused, though, be, I guess, be, uh, apparently because the Grand Maester would be too threatened by another Maester there. Um, he instead served uh, his brother, Prince Daron, who was the Crown Prince. He's Daron the Drunkard. He's the one that had a lot of visions, and he died before he ever ruled. Um, he's the guy that was face down and sensei. If, you if you've read Duncan Egg books, he's the guy that was lying face yeah. down on the ground. <laughs> you know, he was talking yes. about how he's great. He's great at lying in the ground drunk. <laughs> Pretty funny. But, uh, yeah, so basically, uh, as we know, what happened there is Aegon, Aegon the fifth became, became, uh, became king after being like the fourth son of a fourth son, so there's a lot of deaths. But before Aegon became king, Aemon was offered the crown, which is interesting, because that, that shows that he could just choose to give up the Citadel, to give up being a maester and become king. That he had that power, it's not nearly as binding as the Night's Watch Oath is. Uh, and uh, the next point would be, we, we talked about this again before, about Marwyn saying that him going to the Wall was because he was interested in the higher mysteries and he, was, and he, had, he had Targaryen blood and... and Connections with magic. Marwyn says that's the reason. Uh, Aemon says it's to remove himself as a threat to his brother because uh, at that point, just because he really didn't want to be used as a pawn. Because even if Aemon himself, it wasn't like he didn't want the throne. If someone just came in and kidnapped him and took him hostage, they could use him to take the throne. So he, rather than, than that happen, he went to the Night Watch, which is both very far away from the people. And it's also yeah, another vow, so he was I, I more respected vow, I guess. Yeah, you get the sense that the the Night's Watch vow is more serious than the Citadel vow. Yeah, you, I, well, I mean, they can they can send people out of the Citadel. They can, you know, they can. Right? True. You, you can just leave the Citadel. I mean, it's clearly not nearly as binding. Yeah. Um. Uh. Yes, they have been stripped of their chain, but they weren't executed. Yeah, they weren't executed. They were stripped of it, which is a funny, I think, a funny punishment when someone is doing things that the Citadel thinks is wrong. I think it's funny to just strip them out of there and let them loose on the world with their knowledge. Yeah. Kyburn yeah. is, it might have been better to execute Kyburn rather than let him out of the world. Like, look what he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but unlike a deserter of the Night's Watch, somebody who screws up there, they get, that's it for them. You get executed. Yes. But, uh, Eamon is interesting. Uh, when, when he was sent north to the Wall, the people that accompanied him, like on the ship, were Duncan the Tall from Duncan Egg and Blood Raven. And Blood Raven stayed with him all the way to the Wall, where he became Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. So we have Blood Raven as the Lord Commander and Eamon as the Maester, two people that are bound to interact constantly and have discussions and. That must have been a really interesting time to be uh, on the wall. Two Targaryens <laughs> up there. Would love to hear what they talk yes. about. Two two Targaryens that are really into the occult, or at least at least open to the idea. But <laughs> it, even while he was up there, he he wasn't just talking to Blood Raven. That wasn't the only Targaryen he kept in contact with. Aemon was corresponding with Rhaegar even about because about, Rhaegar was into prophecies, and obviously Aemon is a, one of the most learned Targaryens around, especially at that point when. Rhaegar pretty much just had Ares. I mean, what are you going to learn from him? Uh, so they, they talked a lot, and they talked about the prince that was promised and all the prophecies and stuff like that. Uh, but it wasn't until the, right before his death that Aemon 
realized or thinks or, you know, he, he realized himself that he thinks that the prince that was promised was likely Danny, Daenerys. And he thinks that the dragons could be Lightbringer and these are all of his thoughts. Um, and I think it's interesting, too, that this just occurred to me just now, actually, that the, one of the things that Rhaegar and Aemon may have corresponded about was when Aemon got to the Wall, he probably got his hands on some books that are in the, the library up there at the wall that he didn't have access to before. So copies of the books that maybe no one else had access to. So he may have learned some new things, and he would have been eager to share those things with Rhaegar to discuss them. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's some potential in there. And um, there's also, I mean, he, he talks with Rhaegar, though I don't know how current their discussions were as to what's going on in Rhaegar's life. There is a chance that Rhaegar maybe confided a bit that he that maybe he needed a third head to the dragon, or who knows how in detail he went. But there's a chance that he has maybe some suspicions about John's heritage. I mean, he would have heard the story of Lyanna Stark. He would have talked to Rhaegar a lot, and maybe he knew that Rhaegar really wanted to have another kid. I mean, that's yeah. Well, we'll talk more about John. Uh, we have we have talked a little bit about John, but I think. I don't remember how much we talked about. We, we, didn't, we, we, we didn't get into his parentage too much because it's such a standalone topic. But uh, it is very related to this, and it'd be interesting to think that Minister Endon may have some sort of insight there. Of course, too late for him to share that now. But, yeah, uh, with all that talk about prophecy and the fact that Rhaegar really thought he was the prince that was promised for a long time, and he thought that uh, then eventually he kind of changed his mind and thought that it would be one of his kids... And he knew that Elia couldn't have kids anymore. So, yeah, it's entirely possible he discussed that with Maester Raymond. Uh, and that may be why Maester Raymond took such an interest in John. Uh, he may have had, you know, he may have thought of him as kin, uh, which he would be if he's the son of Rhaegar. <laughs> so, they'd be, you know, they'd be cousins. I do think that, that if Aemon was suspected that, I do think he would have told John, like, when, 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 though maybe he wouldn't have wanted, if he didn't know for sure, he wouldn't have wanted to disappoint him. If he had a serious thought, I think that when he's so close to the end of his life and he wants to see more of his family, I think he would have told him. It's possible. So I, I think if, if he did have suspicions, they were very slight suspicions, nothing that he would actually want to get a boy's hopes up over. Yeah, none to act on. I can see that argument, but on the other hand, John is committed to the Night's Watch. I don't know that it does him much good to learn. It, it may be just be a burden to yeah, find out that he's, that's why it he might make him very conflicted. Because yeah. Eamon himself knows how conflicted we heard. Yeah, in the book, he, Eamon mentions that he was tested three times in the show. Uh -huh. It's one time, but it's very, very tough for him to, to stick to his vows. If John finds out that he's the, the crown prince, uh, oof, that would be tough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, that could be another it may have been one of the things that you didn't tell him because it was better to him not for him not to know. Yeah. I mean, he's made his vow to the night watch. Yeah, he's stuck exactly there. Right, you know? As much as he could understand, what, like wanting to, to have a Kargarian on the throne again and wanting John to go do that, Aemon, as he says, he's been tested three times, and those three times he did not fail. So he he also clearly has a large respect for the night watch vow. Uh, okay, so let's move on to Archmaester Walgrave. Uh, that's Ooh. a name that a lot of you may not recognize off the top, but he's the guy in the prologue for Feast of Crows that Pate, the pig boy, is <laughs> sort of, he's his assistant. He's the, the guy that takes care of him. And this is an interesting little uh, tidbit because Walgrave himself isn't perhaps very interesting, but there's some details around him that are very interesting. 
Uh, he is the Archmaster of Ravens, so that means he's the, the Archmaster of the Black Iron links. He has the Rod Raskin mask and ring of Black Iron. Now, we pointed out before how important it is to kind of know what's going on with the Ravens. Now, if you think of a maester in a, in a castle as sort of chief communications officer, basically they get to see all the communications that come, at least via Raven, that come in and out of the castle. They're privy to every single piece of information that's seen that way. Unless, perhaps, a lord tells them, you know, you don't get to open anything with this particular seal on it. But in general, they get to see everything that comes and goes. If you extrapolate that a little farther, you see that the, the Archmaster of Ravenry at the Citadel is basically the chief communications officer for the entire continent. So this guy has access to a lot of information across a lot of different lords and ladies and castles and situations and alliances and potential alliances and all these things. So he's very knowledgeable. So that's only, to be fair, with people going sending ravens into and out of the citadel. Absolutely. Some of these some of these communications between castles may never reach the citadel. But he has the opportunity to, to hear some of these things. So he, he's not going to know everything. But in general, he knows very little because in this case, Archmaster Walgrave is senile. He's very senile. He's forgetful. He doesn't know. He, he forgets Pate's name. He doesn't. He refers to people by you know. He's just he's just on his way out. Uh, we're told that he's not capable of testing students for their black iron link anymore, which is what the archmaster is in charge of. So kind of the second in command guy does that. Uh, we're going to cover him a bit later, but that creates a very interesting situation. The chief communications officer for Westeros is a senile old man. That creates an opportunity for corruption, infiltration. People figure like this guy isn't. You think this guy is going to keep a lockdown on all that information? He can barely keep a lockdown on his own name. So a leak is very possible there. Multiple leaks are possible. People could be getting information about things. I'm, I'm not going to take too many guesses on what that would take all day, uh, since we're talking about the entire scope of, of Westeros and all these possible communication routes. So it, the possibilities are really limitless, but it's a very interesting thing kind of think about the, the, the possibility that there's all sorts of room for corruption and, and intrigue here. Um, but beyond that, uh, I mentioned that uh, Pate uh, hears him say, call people by other names. One thing that Pate gets called himself is Cresson. Uh, he doesn't know who Cresson is, but we the reader know. Cresson, of course, is the old nature that dies at the beginning of Clash of Kings, trying to you know, poison Melisandre and end up poisoning himself. Well, I wish I had more on that. There's some sort of connection between Crescent and Walgrave, Walgrave, but I don't know what it is. I guess they were buddies at, at a young age, or maybe yeah, they were... Maybe they, Crescent they, just... He, they came Raven up together. Maybe Raven was his specialty. Yeah, we, just, student. we just don't know, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, we just don't know. So, uh, he, he's also got... Um, He's also got a, he was also supposed to be stand as Seneschal for a year, and that got taken from him, too, because he's too old. So this guy is really close on his way out. Um, and we want to talk about some of the other stuff that... He, basically, there's a chest of stuff that Pate breaks into in order to steal this key to give to the alchemist, who we're going to talk about at the end of the program. Um, and there's some other stuff that he finds in this chest that's interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, one thing that uh, comes up as interest is uh, some of the things that uh, Pate found in a chest uh, belonging to belonging to uh, Mr. Walgrave is a gauntlet, and suppose this gauntlet was belonged to a prince, and we're not sure who it is. Whether it was Targaryen, 
Um, or maybe a Martell, because Martell is called themselves Princess. Um, maybe it came from overseas. That's unlikely, but a possibility. Um, some of the possibilities of the Targs, uh, Targaryens, would be Rhaegar, um, Aemon, who became, you know, of course, a maester for the Night's Watch. Uh, Prince Duncan from the Small and Egg, uh, uh, the Duncan Egg stories. Uh, or, I'm sorry, the son of Prince Duncan. Uh, he was yeah, Prince Duncan's uh, uh, son. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, I'm, I do apologize. It was uh, Prince Duncan Small, which was uh, Sir Duncan the Tall's son. No, no, it was Egg's son. It was Egg's son, named Egg. after... Yeah, he was named for Duncan. Oh, yeah, it was named after him. Uh, let's see what else was there. Oh, and there was a woman's carving. Uh, the carving is interesting. Because it was noted that it looked just like him, quote unquote, including his mustache. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think that that's a Florent, maybe, that he's a Florent, because the Florents are described as having, like, are kind of hairy women, like, their women are kind of hairy. Uh, for example, Felice, rather. Felice Baratheon has, like, a mustache. And, so she was Italian. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's even mentioned that Celise plucks her mustache every day and it just kind of <laughs> that's terrible. So that's what I think of. I think of her like because Martin genetics don't work like real genetics. Whenever you have something like that, you can actually like make bigger assumptions about who their family members might be. Uh, but yeah, I had a little bit of an interesting tidbit I wanted to talk about in that uh, when doing research for the podcast, kind of stumbled on something that we realized in that okay, so we know that the archmasters, each of them is a, is a master in a discipline. You know that's why. The, they have a ring, a rod, and a mask of a various metal. So they're a master in a discipline. But the Grand Maester, almost positively, in, in my opinion, cannot be an Archmaester. This is because, as we can imagine, that an Archmaester has very specific duties around the Citadel. They have to test people to come in there. And so for an Archmaester to be in King's Landing would be ridiculous. They would have an Archmaester, I think, that it's possible for an Archmaester to become the Grand Maester if they abdicate their position, if they really want it for some reason. No, I don't, I, I don't think that they do. But um, uh, the Archmaesters are the ones, however, that vote on the Grand Maester. They all, they go into the Conclave and the Archmaesters vote on that. So they're the ones that have the opinion on it. And when Pycelle is going to be replaced, they, they, they propose that it'll be Maester Gorman who is not an Archmaester, as we see. Uh, we do know that he's, a, he's, a, he's skilled enough with bravery that he sits for Maester Walgrave uh, for him, so we maybe there are levels below it that a, a Grand Maester has to be someone that could be an Archmaester, but isn't because they, they, they stay there for life. So that, that could be one reason, but it's definitely some proof that we, uh, that we, um, that we, that we, uh, that we don't know what, like Pycelle, for instance, we don't know what he's particularly good at. The the chains that he has have large gems in them. They they don't reflect his true his true studies at the Citadel. We know that in particular that his chain is like a false chain. We don't know if Pycelle has a has a link in Valyrian steel. We don't know. His chain just represents basically that he's the Grand Maester. It's jeweled and ornate and whatnot. Anyways. Uh, okay, so now we get, let's talk about Maester Warlys. This is a guy who gets mentioned very briefly, and he's not a guy we'll go into a lot of detail with, but the things that he talks about uh, bring us into some new 
potential plot lines. Um, he was the maester for Rickard Stark, which, of course, is Ned and Brandon and Lyanna's father. And he, according to Lady Dustin, uh, Lady Barbary Dustin, of course, has, has several conversations with Theon in Dance of Dragons. She is of the opinion that it was him, this maester, who pushed uh, Lord Rickard to... Uh, be more a part of the rest of the kingdom, basically to marry outside of the north, because it's very typical to marry within your own kingdom. You you shore up your own strength by marrying your daughters and sons to your top bannermen. But Rickard married all his kids to other to kingdom to houses outside of his own uh, kingdom. So that's that was a little unusual. And around that same time, there were a lot of other lords making similar sort of connections and sort of uh, alliances that were kind of unusual for the time. Now, so she really, this is a bad thing for her. She really doesn't like the maester. She thinks of them as, you know, she thinks of them as gray sheep as well, or, or gray rats, she calls them, I guess it is. Uh, she doesn't trust them very much at all. Um, so my, one belief I have is something that we're going to touch on. Actually, we should probably just dive into it a bit because it's, it's kind of a, these two things are connected, and neither of them we have a ton to go on because they're kind of new plot lines that are developing in the most recent books, is the grand, not the grand maester as in Pycelle, but as in the grand, as in great, maester conspiracy, which is uh, the notion that the maesters are trying to reshape the world a little uh, in basically science. They want to kind of push the supernatural to the side in favor of science. They want people to learn the things that they can, can understand. They don't want people delving into magic because magic is unexplained and unreliable and largely, especially we hear from a guy like Maester Lewin, which I think is ironic. Maester Lewin, since they're telling Bran that magic is gone, there's nothing there anymore. He's telling this to a kid that's having magical dreams and has magical powers. It's, it's kind of hilarious <laughs> if you think about it. But you kind of get to think that the North is more of a mystical kingdom. Their gods are more, uh, are less... They don't have temples so much. It's more of a nature worship. And there's all these sort of mystical aspects to it. And you get the sense that the Citadel doesn't like that. They want it to be... They want them to worship the Seven. They want them to be like everyone else. The Seven... The, the religion of the Seven is a more tractable religion. There's no outward mysticism about it. Unlike the other religions, which is something we'll touch on on another show. I know we, got, I know we tease you guys a lot with... We'll talk about that on another show. But that's just the nature of this information. <laughs> what you should do is go to our Facebook page. We have a poll right on the top, and you can add an option, or you can vote. And if you're like, come on, just do an episode on religion already, you can tell us, and maybe we'll do it next week. Yeah, if we've teased you too much, just let us know and tell us, hey, this is what we want to, you know, you teased me too much. Fill this out for us. But uh, that's right. <laughs> but specifically, uh, the, the, this connection between the old gods and the, and the, the seven, there's... No outward magic at any point that we see from the Seven. R'hllor, the god of R'hllor, we see specific examples of R'hllor or the followers of R'hllor doing outwardly magical things. We see the old gods, followers of the old gods or disciples of the old gods like Bran doing very magical things. None of the worshippers of the, the Seven. Even the drowned god has a magical element. Yeah, you're right. Even the drowned god has an element of magic to it. The Seven being, even though it's the most pervasive religion by far, it's got, the, it's got zero Zero examples of outward magical things but then, happening. But then the faith, the seven was was the it was the Andal religion, and it, it's it's uh, speculated the Andals 
were escaping the Valyrian slavery and the blue and Valyria was very magic oriented, so a, a face for them would be no magic. They don't want magic involved in all that. Yeah. But as we said, we'll go into I, I, we'll go into religion in another episode, which is one I'm looking forward to. Yeah, that'll be a good one. But but the so the important takeaway for as far as this this uh, this current discussion is that the citadel is kind of against magic. It's it's, it's it, we're not saying that there's some sort of General, for generations, the Citadel has been working together with all their masters have had this sort of Illuminati-like plot to get rid of magic. Some people We're not are saying, saying that. Some, Some people are saying that. We're not saying that. It's more of a, it makes sense for them. An ambitious maester is going to want people to respect him and trust in his knowledge, which is his power. A maester's power is his knowledge. And the secrets of the world are his, are his power. That's what gives him ability. That's what keeps him, makes him a useful person in the world. So... Just like a businessman is going to want to increase his wealth and his ability to do deals with other businessmen, or a lord is going to want to increase his holdings or increase his, increase his troops, a maester is going to want his knowledge to mean more and for it to have more sway with people. And if people believe in magic, well, science just isn't as interesting or as meaningful when you believe in mystical things. So they don't all have to be united towards this plot. It's something that makes sense for all of them to push for. And so for generations, the maesters have been pushing for this. And over time, it, you know, it's had an effect. And, but there's more to it than that. There is a suspicion, for example, that the maesters had something directly to do with the extinction of dragons. Whoa, hey, <laughs> that's a big one, huh? Yes. Remember that the last few dragons were sickly and didn't make it past a couple years old. Well, why is that? What happened? Was that because the magic was dying out in the world, and so the magical forces weren't empowering these dragons to was live? Was it because of the dragon pits and being confined? Because that's what I had always thought of. I had thought of it as being them being overly confined and not... I, the dragon pit would explain to me why they don't get huge, but it yeah. wouldn't explain why a really young one yeah, wouldn't even... Talking. We're talking about dog-sized dragons yeah. dying out before they can, you know, before they even get to the age of five. So, so... The fact that something could be going on there is entirely possible. And there's little, very small, subtle textual hints for it. Uh, I'm eager for the next book when I imagine that there will be more clues for that. But it's something to think about. Perhaps the maesters were poisoning the dragons. It's something that they would have easy access to do. Yeah. They're relied on for that sort of thing, for taking care of animals and for understanding these sort of things. So they would have access to do it and... and it would be hard to suspect a particular maester or two of doing something like that. Yeah, so. Marwin himself says that in the world the Citadel is, is building, there is no room for magic or dragon. Yeah, he makes it sound like it is some sort of hierarchy yeah. conspiracy where all the maesters are involved. But, so it is possible, but I think that's a little too much for generations upon generations of maesters to kind of be working behind the scenes to do this. But it's not impossible. This is a fantasy novel, after all. Okay, <laughs> yes. uh, okay so let's talk about Mr. Lewin. Yeah. Mr. Lewin is one of the most loved maesters, besides Mr. Amon. I mean, pretty similar level there. He's the maester to the Starks. He's the first maester we see. And he's clearly been there for some time. He delivered all of Catelyn's children. Though he wasn't, he, he's been there for some time, but not that long because, as we just heard, Maester, maester Warlies was there prior for Ricard. So he came in sometime during our during Eddard's reign. Yeah. We know that. Possible there's another maester in there for a short time, but he, yeah, wouldn't, but he wouldn't have been there very long if yeah. so, so. In any case, uh, um, yeah, anyways, um, uh, Marwyn 
as we mentioned before, Marwin makes those comments about uh, about them sending people north that that are interested in magic and the higher mysteries, and maybe that's why Lewin was sent up there. Maybe Lewin's just, you know, maybe he's not, maybe he's a northerner, maybe he's... There's two ways to look at it, I sort of think. Given Marwin's comments, maybe they sent him up there to kind of get him out of the way. They didn't. They don't like these guys studying mysteries, the higher mysteries. They don't like the magic kind of guys. On the other hand, Lewin could be one of the best ambassadors for anti-magic there is, because he studied to yeah. get his Valyrian link and doesn't believe in any of it anymore. Yeah. That's so true. he's perhaps one of the best guys to say, "Hey, magic is real," because he's tried he's to study. He's saying that too, and he keeps saying it. He's, he's like we said before. He's, he's sitting here telling Brand that magic isn't real, even though Brand's like, "Uh, really? I'm magical, aren't I?" Or <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of. I always thought that was kind of funny, but but so Lewin is kind of the, is an interesting figure in that sense because he's sitting here telling us that magic is gone. He studied it thoroughly, like unlike mo like most more than just about anyone in the series can can claim to have done. Other than say Marwin, uh, or maybe Tyburn. Or... Magic is gone, and now magic is coming back. Maybe he, if he lived a little bit longer, he'd be like, "Oh, magic's back." He studied it. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean... But now he's dead, and he's <laughs> not going to get to see it. So. Yeah. <laughs> Poor guy. Um, now on to another maester, the right. Grand. Oh yes. Well, we have Maester Pycelle, the Grand Maester, and he's been Grand Maester for over forty years. Uh, which is a pretty big deal, uh, considering the fact that he was actually elected by the conclave of the Citadel. Um, the small council do not get to elect the Grand Maester. The king doesn't get to elect the Grand Maester. This is all done by the Citadel. Yep, and, the and Grand all Maester, by the Archmaesters. I'm sorry? I said it all by the Archmaesters. They, only they get to choose, too. It's yes. completely secret what happens in the Conclave, actually. We, yeah, the Conclave is apparently made up of all Archmaesters. Even the, even the Grand Maester doesn't know what happens in the Conclave. Yeah, so the Grand Maester is not to be thought of as above the Archmaesters. He's sort of parallel. He's, he's got a high office, but it's, it's a different sort of high office. He's not, a, he's not at the Citadel, so he can't he's play the representative to the high council. He's only the representative to the small council. To be honest, so he's not like the Pope, but he's more like a really, he's not the he's more like a really well-regarded cardinal. Sure. Yeah, he's the ambassador, you know. Yeah, yeah. So um, now uh, the thing that's interesting about him, um, he actually has a ch his chain actually contains jewels on his links, and. Uh, and, and despite the fact that, you know, as we were just saying, that, that he holds the highest office, it's, it's, um, it's known for being neutral. And it's clearly, this one in particular, Grandmaster Pycelle, he's very clearly pro-House Lannister. Yeah. Tywin, above all. Yeah, he loves Tywin. <laughs> Man crush. <laughs> um... And he's actually said that he that Tywin is a greater man than any of the four kings he has served. Remember, he's been there for forty years. Yeah. Um, he he believes that Tywin's ability to keep peace and stability within the realm is something he has great respect and love for. Um, and this actually brought up a question that I brought in earlier: is like, do you think some of these betrayals that we've seen from both Pycelle as well as Tywin stem from that loyalty? Yeah, I think it, a lot of it does, but uh, some of it's his bias and some of it's his loyalty, for sure. I think that he has a, you know, a kind of a really high opinion of Tywin. So when Tywin's involved, he tends to think that 
Tywin's going to do good, I guess. That's kind of his opinion. But Miz is also the guy that called Joffrey the bravest boy, the noblest, bravest boy the realm has ever seen with Tyrion. Yeah. That's... different adjectives. His, yeah, his bias may be such so great that it in, actually pervades his, his intellect, you know. Uh, so I don't, I don't know. Also, he's old and a little senile, perhaps. But yeah, well, I don't know how that goes on the next point. You know, he wouldn't uh, be senile when uh, when Tywin was at the gates of King's Landing. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean that's what I'm saying. Is uh, that brings the next point was is how he actually counseled King Aerys to open the gates for King for Tywin Lannister, only to have Tywin Lannister order the sacking of King's Landing, and. Uh, Varys was the one who counseled the opposite. But now we also know Varys is someone who historically has been pro Lannister. I'm sorry, pro uh, Targaryen. Possibly. And, and that brings a whole new set of plots right there. Yeah. Pro Targaryen to a point that 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 uh, furthers his own interests. Right. Yeah. Pro anyone to that point. <laughs> we'll tease you guys again. Varys will be a podcast at some point. The plots of Varys and his relationship. Yeah. Oh. Well, he's got a lot of them. Oh yeah, that might be that might take more than one episode. <laughs> um, uh, let's see, and uh, yeah, in and, and, and the later books, um, he actually gets stripped of his uh, seat on the small council by Tyrion, and even thrown into the black cells. Um, Tyrion. <laughs> yes. Yeah, son's beard. <laughs> and uh, it was Tywin that came in and rescued him. Um, yes. because when the Citadel had heard this, they wanted Maester Gorman, who was a Tyrell, to take his place. Yep. Oh, Tywin wasn't having it. He was not going to have it. Want another Ty not only did I don't. We talk about how Tywin, or how how Pycelle is a big fan of Tywin. That's probably yeah. an understatement. Tywin, not a huge fan of Pycelle potentially, but certainly likes Pycelle more than. Any possible Tyrell maester uh, yeah. could be. So yeah. this this Gorman guy, by the way, is also the man currently standing uh, for uh, Archmaester Waldrave yes. in place, giving the test for the Ravens. So this Maester Gorman, who is a Tyrell, is kind of de facto in charge of the Ravens right now for the Citadel. So that's well, to keep an eye on. Possible. He's sitting for him in the testing. Right. He may in not be testing, dealing. He might not actually be dealing with it. I mean. Walgrave obviously has a lot of helpers at the Citadel, a yeah. lot of people that need to learn Ravenry, and there's a lot of people dealing with that. But he's testing people. So we see that Gorman was prevented in taking this job because of Tywin, Tywin's uh, interference. Mm -hmm. uh, but now, not only is Tywin gone, but so is Pycelle now. So now I assume Maester Gorman is going to take that job. There's no Tywin to prevent that from happening. Uh, I don't know that Cersei alone will be able to stop that from happening. So well, especially after her recent, um, a recent, uh, I don't know how you want to put it, um, dismissal from court, if you will. <laughs> so, the uh, same. So, yeah, something along those lines. So, so Gorman is almost certainly going to come up again. Now he's almost certainly going to take the place of Pycelle. and that's going to cause some tension, probably having a Tyrell Maester and. A, you know, a Tyrell queen and all these other Ty Tyrell and the King's Guard, a Tyrell as, as Hand of the King, mm -hmm. Tyrells on the small council, including Paxter Redwine and, and, and uh, Randall Tarley. 
So you can see why the Lannisters wanted to stem the <laughs> flow of Tyrells coming into power yeah, here. So many of them. Yeah, I mean, their their wealth and influence is matched by the sheer number of them that yeah. are capable, uh, you know, court uh, capable. doers, movers, and shakers. Yeah, they're just capable. And, and well, here's a question I have for you then. All right, uh, both, for both of you actually is. Do you think this would qualify as the beginning of the fall of the Lannister power? Yeah, I do think so. The fact that it's just Cersei now, Cersei's like the only really capable uh, Lannister, are uh, capable in quotes there. Uh, pretty much everyone. I mean, although Jamie is becoming more capable, he doesn't seem, he still doesn't. He, he doesn't care that much. He still doesn't seem to care about politics that much. He's becoming a leader and. And he still does other things, but he still doesn't seem all that interested in politics. And he's got his own things to deal with now that he's out in the Riverlands. And he's missing the right hand. Yeah. <laughs> and there's that, yes. His, uh... <laughs> he can't sign documents. <laughs> he cannot. Uh, so, okay, so moving on. Um, we do think that Cer 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 One last thing. If Cersei tries to balk at Dormund being appointed, that could, that could really fast-forward... The uh, the top the fallout that appears to be impending between Tyrell and Lannister, uh, so so we'll just have to see how that goes. Yeah, it's okay. offensive to say that you don't want when a Tyrell is to be the well, you know, exactly. they're good enough, you know. Yeah. There's all sorts of ways to be offended at that. All right, who's next? Oh, okay, we're gonna talk about Whore's Bay Number, who has a very cool name. He is the Whore's Bay. <laughs> yeah. He's, He's the Bane of all whores. Yes, he is the bane of whores, but not female whores, male whores. He killed a male whore, and that's why he's a whore's bane. I don't know why he was with him, you know. I, I the, the male whore tried to rob him. I don't really know what happened there. Why was he around a male whore? I, I, I don't know. Was he there trying to get his services? And yeah, maybe he was an accident yeah. for, a, for a treatise on uh, sexually but, uh, transmitted diseases. But whore's bane <laughs> is... Uh, He's the uncle of Great John Umber, basically, and he was sent to study with the Maester, and he did not succeed. That's pretty much all we know about him. And that's just an interesting tidbit because yeah, it's funny tidbit. You, you don't think about the extreme north. The Umbers, don't forget, are like extreme north. They're like next to. So you don't really think about those. They're more north than Rob Stark. That's for sure. Yeah, that's not really their. Uh, you think they sent him to the Wall, you know, <laughs> like Benjamin did, but yes. And then another interesting Maester we have is. Halden Halfmaester, named as such, not because he's a dwarf or anything like that, but because he just didn't earn all of his wings. He got half of his chain, or around half, we don't know how many links he has, but he's quite capable, apparently. Um, he, we, don't, we really don't know anything about his background at all, which is kind of the point about, of, of maesters, and when they take that, even though he didn't complete it, he still kind of eschewed his former name, and we don't know much about his history. He he's with Aegon right now, so he's in a really strong position because he's been a long-term companion of Aegon. Aegon obviously is going to trust him. He's taught him. He was his tutor, and he taught him, you know, languages and customs and history. And so he's in a really good spot if Aegon wins. And uh, he's also a very perceptive person. Person and. Uh, yeah, he's he's you know he's like kind of on top of things. He figures out really quickly that uh, when Tyrion gives his name, Hugor Hill. Haldim's all over that, saying, well, are you a small king or a uh, bastard from the West? He, he kind of understands all the implications of that uh -huh. name, because Hugh Roar was uh, an important Andal figure from history, a king, like the original king of the Andals, kind of. So, 
Tyrion immediately earmarks this guy as someone that he who's very perceptive and, and, and knowledgeable. So he, he, we don't want to be confused about the fact that he never finished his Maester's Chain. It's not because he flunked out or failed. There's some reason, and perhaps it's becoming the Maester to Aegon that came along a long time ago. Perhaps that's why he left the Citadel, because this opportunity to uh, be a part of this sort of conspiracy, this long-term conspiracy came up, and so he, he jumped at it, and that, that means he had to leave the Citadel. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, it was pretty interesting. Uh, uh, about, I mean, they're conning uh, uh, Yeah, and uh, he, he basically, he, he advises John Connington to get married. So he's, 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 a, he's very, he's clearly, Connington and Aegon are, see him as a guy that's worthy of listening to for political advice. Of course, we know that Connington has grayscale and doesn't want to, and is probably gay, so he's not interested in a wife for multiple reasons. Uh, as an aside, how is that going to play out? That's a kind of that's grayscale. Yeah, that's just going to be. That's just a really big bugaboo waiting to just pop up and screw all kinds of things up. So, mm-hmm. but that's obviously not uh, for this topic. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we are. Uh, we're running kind of short on time. We want to get to the one of the most important topics. So let's just jump to that. We we kind of we wanted to yeah. talk about. Little mentions of other maesters here and there. We wanted to talk about the bad treatment that Ironborn maesters get. Uh, in general, they aren't trusted. Uh, a couple, there's a couple examples of them basically getting killed just for failing in a job that's not supposed to be an automatic thing. Uh, we have the maester of the Victorian getting his throat cut in front of a board, and that gets them fast for wins. Thanks uh-huh. for to Macora. So, um, I have a question. Sure. Um, you you mentioned uh, in the notes here it says the Havens major sent with Vicarian who was raped by the crew. Yeah, and had his throat cut yeah. after McCall came aboard. He was yeah. raped by the crew. He was. He complains to Victorian about being raped. He said he said some of the men used me as a uh, men might use a woman. <laughs> and Victorian's has no patience for this. He grabs a dagger and slams it down into the table and says, "Here's how you deal with that." <laughs> He's like basically, which is basically a way of saying, if you can't fight them off, you deserve it. <laughs> yeah. He has no patience for weakness, like a lot of other uh, badasses. So, so Victoria is basically like Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> like, yeah, deal with it yourself, you weakling. I have a question, real quick. Um, is there a limit on iTunes slash talk show to how long the episode can be? Is that what is two hours? We've got a, we've got recorded episodes over two hours though. We have, um, but I had to re- reduce the uh, the bit rate. Ah, oh, okay, okay. okay. That, I was just trying to figure out. Um, yeah, so we'll just want to, obviously we're going to edit that part out. But, um, yeah. Okay, yeah, so our, our final topic, uh, which comes full circle to Euron Greyjoy potentially having the Citadel infiltrated, and that is Jaqen Hagar has infiltrated the Citadel. Now, oh, yeah. we are almost, we are about 99% sure of this, and here is why. Let's give you some, a couple of descriptions. Yes. Compare... These descriptions. First, we have Arya in A Clash of Kings says, Jaqen passed a hand down his face from forehead to chin, and where it went, he changed. His cheeks grew fuller, his eyes closer, his nose hooked. A scar appeared on his right cheek where no scar had been before. And when he shook his head, his long, straight hair, half red and half white, dissolved away to reveal a cap of tight black curls. Hmm. Interesting. Steve is gonna. Steve is gonna read us uh, uh, the sa- a similar view from another character in the prologue. Yeah. 
Yeah, Peggy in the, in the prologue of A Feast for Crows. And he describes him as he was just a man, and his face was just a face. A young man's face, ordinary, with full cheeks and a shadow of a beard. A scar showed faintly on his right cheek. He had a hooked nose and a mat of dense black hair that curled tightly around his ears. So there's several things in those two descriptions that are identical, and they're, and they're all together. The, the, the scar, the hooked nose, the tight mop of black curls. Uh, so, and of course, he uses a faceless man's weapon. Oh, just everything. He uses a faceless man's weapon, the, the poisoned gold coin, to kill Pate. And then takes his place, which is something we've seen, you know, from artist chapters that the faceless man can do. Now, so the big question is, we're pretty sure who he is. Is almost positive of who he is. The real question is, though, what the heck is he doing there? Yes. Now, there's several very interesting possibilities. Uh, my favorite uh, possibility uh, is that he's looking for a specific book. Remember, what he gets from Pate is this key. And this key supposedly opens all the doors in the Citadel. The Citadel is famous for its vault. This vault has a lot of important knowledge, some of which is contained possibly nowhere else in the world. Tyrion gives us a clue to something in that vault. And it's the only clue, that specific clue we have to anything that's in that vault, besides knowing this vague notion that there's lots of you know, interesting and dark secrets in there. We know that there's a book called The Death of Dragons in this vault. And it's a treatise written by... Uh, a I can't remember who it was written by, but it was written on the, uh, the topic of the death of dragons, possibly the, their weaknesses, uh, how, you know, how they're able to be killed, things like that. So we can guess that since Jaken is a faceless man, and Jaken is from, and the faceless men are from Bravos, and the Bravosi and the faceless men are linked uh, through common heritage relating to the Valyrians and the Doom, we get the idea that possibly. He is trying to learn about how to kill dragons. Why would he do that? Well, because the Bravosi are very anti-dragon. The Bravosi formed their city uh, in a location that dragons would have a hard time reaching. It was founded by ex-slaves who ran away from Valyria. So they're both anti-slavery and anti-dragon. Uh, in fact, if you recall, Jon Snow discussing with the Bravosi banker in A Dance with Dragons... The banker, John makes a, a joke about dragons, and the banker's like, well, forgive me for not laughing. We don't joke about dragons in Bravos. So that, that attitude is still pervasive even now, even though dragons have died out 130, 150 years ago. So, Let alone how long they've gone from Bravos. Right, yeah, yeah, and they were never in Bravos, as far as we know. So this is, this is still an important part of their culture and their heritage. So it's possible that's what he's doing, um, that he's specifically looking for this book. Even, but maybe he's not looking for the book to kill. Maybe he's looking for it as a form of control. Mm -hmm. uh, possibly that Jaken is still uh, working for Euron, perhaps. That's very possible, yeah. And I mean, um, and there's other possibilities of where we haven't heard, you know, like uh, is he trying to go after a specific person, obviously, or the, the key isn't necessary to gain access to a particular person, but maybe to a specific item or artifact um, apart from the Death of Dragons book. Uh, well, how that horn works, who knows? Uh, yeah, yeah, Euron has that horn. Yeah, Euron used the Faceless Man to, yeah. to kill Mayoran. Uh, and so maybe that same Faceless Man is Jaken, or he just is using Faceless Man. Yeah, he yeah, Mayoran. 
Real, real quick to jump in, some people may say, wait, what? Euron used a facial scan to kill <laughs> Balon? Didn't Balon fall from a bridge? Well, as an, we're going to have to talk about that in another episode more specifically, more in more detail, but the quick detail there is uh, a vision seen by the ghost at High Heart, which is the dwarf woman that the uh, banners uh, goes to talk to you on the hill, and this is from the uh, She says she sees a man with no face with a crow on his shoulder waiting on a bridge. Well, a crow on your shoulder, you're on crow's eye, hires a man without a face, faceless man, uh, waiting yeah. on a bridge. Balon died crossing a bridge. There you go. That's pretty straightforward. <laughs> Did you, I mean, really, Balon fell to his death? Come on. <laughs> I, I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so here we go. So we got a faceless man killing Balon, almost certainly. What if that faceless man was Jaken? If that's the case, then maybe Jaken is still in Euron's employ. Well, it definitely brings the question that, that he's still in the north. Yeah, 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 yeah. Otherwise, Euron, even if it isn't Jaken, Euron still obviously has the ability to use a faceless man. I mean, he contacted them, and he's used one before, maybe he used it again. He's still, it's still, it's still dangerous no matter what. What I like to think is that Euron said to either Victorian or some, I forget who it was, it doesn't matter. He, he, he used to have a dragon. And some and they were he was asked, Well what happened to this dragon? And he said, I threw it into the sea during one of my darker moods. I think that might be a metaphor for it was payment. He because the faceless men demand exorbitant payments and we're told that a dragon egg is unbelievably valuable. So if he was if he was able to give this as payment to the Bravosi or to the faceless men, it would give him you know, it could get it could buy him a lot of, you know, faceless man time. <laughs> yeah. So it's entirely possible that, that Jacob is doing a, a series of jobs for uh, for Euron, and that, like I said, the egg that could be a metaphor for uh, payment rather than throwing it into the into the ocean. Yeah. Uh, which begs the question: Where did he get that egg? I wonder. Dragon eggs aren't exactly. Yeah, well, exactly. Where did he get that egg? Yeah. So uh, the horn. Well, we knew that all of the Targaryen princes and his brothers each had a each had a dragon egg. And those all, all of those men are dead. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, Eamon, he, he had an egg, but he went north and joined the Citadel. And so, point. I mean, there are those... We don't know what happened. We don't, yeah, egg himself uh, from the Duncan Egg stories tells us that a lot of the... the a lot of the... Um, all the young Targaryens got an egg put in their crib yeah. uh, for a while there. He's just Where's passed eggs egg down all over. Yeah, so... So, yeah, he may have found them. I wish we had a description of it, because the eggs are... A lot of the eggs are kind of unique-looking. Yeah. Um, so... You know, it could maybe match them up to each other, but but we don't. Unfortunately, we just don't have much to go on other than that. So that's uh. So I love that. Jaken most certainly has infiltrated the Citadel. He's in there somewhere, and he may be tied to Euron. He may be working for someone else. He may be fulfilling a kind of deep faceless man goal that's related to their own existence, to their own uh, their kind of their creed. But right. no matter what. Serious stuff is going to go down in winter yeah. in Old Town in the oh, city. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of action concentrated right there, and we're going to find out a lot more that we're going to want to do an episode on Old Town. <laughs> yeah, when the book comes out, we'll be uh, now we'll be uh, we'll be right. having to circle back with a whole bunch of new information. That'll be a lot more. Yeah. But for now, folks, this is what we've got. Uh, this should hopefully prepare you and, and make you. Hopefully, this makes you want to go reread Feast for Crows. That's that's kind of kind of how I feel when I learn new stuff. I'm putting all this information. Yeah. Into uh, into 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 play and reading it with the, all these things in mind, uh, it's like a whole new book. I'll tell you what, so 
Well, yeah, I'm actually going to do some myself. <laughs> so I think that's it. Uh, I think that's our that's our that's our maesters. That's our plots. That's uh, that's Old Town and the Citadel. That's all. That's that's everything you. I bet there's uh, a lot you didn't even think we'd talk about. A lot of new things. Um, a lot of fun things. Things we didn't get to talk about. A couple of things we didn't get to talk about because there's just so much as usual. Yeah, um, yeah we're running short of time there, but uh, yeah, we'll get to it eventually. In, uh, maybe in another aspect of the podcast. So let us know, uh, folks. As usual, we ask for for feedback. Uh, send us what you can. Let us know. Um, you know, if you're surprised by some things, we'd love to. We have. We can, you know, feel free to start a discussion with us. We uh, we're happy to discuss uh, these theories and plots with fans on uh, with listeners and fans on on Twitter or on Facebook or on or, YouTube, or email or on YouTube. Any of these places, these are all uh, or on iTunes. Leave us an iTunes comment too. Absolutely, yeah. all great forums. All these places work for discussions. All of them. All of them. All of them. <laughs> And yeah, I try to check them. Every, you know, we try to check them every week. And uh, so, yeah, if you have anything to say, you got some suggestions. Best place for suggestions is definitely our Facebook page. That one gets monitored yeah. quite often. So, if you find us on Facebook, you know, just go to History of Westeros. Um, if you want to hear about the Isle of Ibn, you know, we'll try to figure something out. <laughs> There's not a whole lot of information on that one, but. <laughs> There's still some stuff I'd love to talk about. I would, I, I would like to talk more about the the farther reaches of the known world. Cause we, you guys did. I, I say we, because I'm always here in the background when you guys are doing the episodes. <laughs> but did the Lands of Ice and Fire, which showed a lot of things we found from the Lands of Ice and Fire book. But there's still a lot we didn't talk about with regards oh, yeah. to the very farther regions and the speculation and the things like that. But yeah, so if you have any suggestions, leave them on our page. And I know we're called History of Westeros. We we obviously aren't only focused on the history. We try to make that a main theme, but it's too much fun analyzing the plots, and the, and, the, and, the, the, and the history does tie directly into the plots, because a lot of these, a lot of history aspects are done as, as foreshadowed. Yes. They're, they're yes. done, so they're part of the plots. These two things are very intertwined. So, yeah. we can't really separate the two. So, from our perspective, the plot episodes take more preparation, but they're also more fun in some ways because we get to we get we get to make a lot of guesses, we get to make predictions. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind that we're sort of developing a a pattern here. We have our plots episode, and we have our history episodes, and obviously the history episodes tend to be non-spoiler, and the the, the, the plot episodes are very spoilery. So yeah. if you guys have feedback on that whole system uh, of of how we handle it, we'd love to hear that as well. Yeah. And of course, uh, so it, but that also would help you help uh, listeners suggest uh, when you're making a suggestion for something for us to talk about. You could keep that in mind. Say, hey, I want the history of this, or I want you to discuss the plots of that. Yes. Uh, for example, a couple people have been asking us more to talk about Jon Snow's parentage. So we're going to have to do that pretty soon. Yeah. Uh, any of these plots, anything, any of the mysteries of the series that you want to suggest for us to talk about. We're pretty much going to be game for just about anything. So just throw it out there. Don't be afraid. We're not going to laugh at you for making a suggestion. Uh, Personally, I want to know where Tyrion's nose went. <laughs> uh, well, the ground. It's well, actually, it would be in the water, wouldn't it? Oh, it's yeah. Floating around yeah. Blackwater Bay. Well, somebody had to pick it up. Yeah, maybe yeah. someone will catch it in their catch a fish in their net, and that'll be like it's what? in their stew. Yeah, <laughs> look the nose. Tyrion's nose stew. Mm. <laughs> Let's all go out and have a bowl of that tonight. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> all right. All right, well, that sounds good. Um, again, you can find us on Twitter. We're under 
history, or I'm sorry, Westeros history on Twitter. We also have an email, direct email you can email us at, at westeroshistory at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Facebook at History of Westeros. Um, is there anything else I'm missing? Uh, I think that's it. Oh, well, there we go. So that's how you can contact us. So anytime you have a suggestion on, you know, you want us to cover a certain subject or whatever, let us know. I mean, uh, we read all comments. We read all, you know, uh, suggestions. And uh, and if it's feasible, we'll definitely, you know, put it into our feed. You know, I'm, uh, to be honest, we don't get a whole lot of them. So anything you can suggest is great. And one other last thing, folks, we do rely a lot on word of mouth. A lot of Most of the people who have heard about us, We've heard it's because other people have told their friends, hey, these guys are good. They know what they're talking about. Uh, most of the podcasts that are out there on, on Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire, are more are not related to – don't try to delve as deep into the material as we do. Uh, that's not a slam on them. It's just it's just what we do versus what they do. Not, you know, everyone does what they, yeah, they some, think is fun. Some deal with the show specifically, whereas some deal with the books, you know, superficially. And we try to get down into it. So we're yeah, so we're really trying to delve deep. We're trying to like pull the, you know, really pull peel off the layers is, is a term I've heard. And that's, that's some, someone told us that we did that pretty well, uh, really well on the Ariane spoiler chapter there. So that's, oh. that's, a, that's a term I like. We like to we like to peel the layers off on these plots. We like to really get deep. So uh, if you have friends that 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 are into that sort of thing, let them know. We kind of rely on that. We rely on yeah. them. Yes, very much so. All right, so there we go. And again, thank you all for listening and watching and whatnot. Again, remember, the YouTube feed is quite raw, so there won't be much editing in there as of yet. Maybe later on I'll do some editing, but as of right this minute, no. <laughs> okay. There we go. And there you have it, another episode of History of Westeros podcast dedicated to the A Song of Ice and Fire book series by George R. Martin, as well as the television show Game of Thrones on HBO. And again, we bid you adieu and Bela Magulis.